Welcome to an extra special edition of Top Lines and Tales, and we're so excited because this week it is our 100th episode. Yes, 100 episodes since I first started out with an idea during COVID that uh, would be nice to record a few stories about some people from past and present in the livestock industry. And I'm so thankful to all you listeners out there who've given us a great start and faithful listeners, thousands of you every week. And it's absolutely brilliant to, to be involved in so many of you have mentioned over the recent year or two, uh, please feed those hungry cows that are always in the background bawling for food. So instead, we've added a small introduction tune to Top Lines and Tales, and this, hope you enjoy it, is called Cash Cow by the Blue Dot Sessions. And... This week we're going for a very special edition because I'm going to pick out some highlights from some of my favourite episodes within the Top Lines and Tales podcast and there's some absolute gems in there as you can imagine out of 100 and I know you've heard them all before but uh, putting them together in context I think will make for a, for an excellent episode and uh, I hope you'll all enjoy this uh, this trip back down the last couple of years along with myself. As some of you will know I've had a uh, professional vested interest in the Angus breed for for a number of years and uh, it's not surprising that whenever podcasts come up that involve Angus cattle both past and present that uh, we always get a great a great listenership and uh, and a lot of downloads and a lot of uh, a lot of feedback from and I'm going to start with probably one of the gentlemen within the Angus industry, one of those guys who's done probably more for the Angus breed in the last 30 years than, than anybody else, uh, uh, Neil Massey from Blelac. So let's hear what uh, Neil has to say about uh, his origins within the Angus breed. His highlights from episode number 38. Yeah, I was present at the society that year and I was horrified by how bad the trade was. In fact, Rolly Fraser said at one point, uh, bull, going, bull after bull going through unsold, and Rolly Fraser said at one point, does anybody want an Aberdeen Angus bull? <laughs> And that was just about the state, the lowest stage of the thing. But about eight thousand was a good price for me at that time. And but uh, I was horrified with the rest of the trade. I must say. Uh, and we'd be probably early eighties by then, Neil. I guess. Yes, that was early. Yeah, early eighties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you make... said, Powerhouse left you a Perth champion, but he left you more than one, I think, didn't he? Oh, he was he was a very successful bull for us over the years. Yeah. But the, the next move we brought in was south of Winchester yeah. in 1985, I think, and he was a very. Uh, I saw his photograph on a on a catalogue, and I phoned Jim Mowbray, who was a livestock agent out there, and asked if he was going to this sale. He said he was, and I said, if the bull looks anything like this photograph, buy him. <laughs> well, he was a mature bull, and uh, but he bought him for three and a half thousand dollars. But I think it cost more than that to get him home. But he was a he was an excellent bull, one one of the one of the favourites of mine over the years. But I also bought a heifer at that time called Coldstream Lady Heather. Uh-huh. And she established her Lady Heather line, and uh, out of her and mated with the uh, with Winchester, we got Lord Horatio, who sold to Weatherly and Tofts and Haymount for eleven thousand guineas. And so and that Lady Heather family has bred a lot of Perth champions for us over the years. We bought a lot of bulls, not me entirely, but collectively British breeders bought a lot of bulls that were very extreme. But they did a lot of good to the, our breed, the, the, although they produced a lot of pretty horrible looking beasts sometimes. But we got milk back into the breed, which had been lost, and we got size back in. And since over the years, we've begun to get the shape back into them again. 
loaded out, which has been very important for us, I think. Good Bull I brought in, of course, was Royal Added Value. Yes. He, he came in in 94, and he, he, he's probably had a huge influence now it had over the years. Uh, he, he, uh, he wasn't a massive bull, but he was really a classy bull out of a very, very good cow. And, uh, well, we sold him to Shadwell eventually for far more than we bought him. And he uh, went on to be, at eight years old, I think, he was champion of the Royal Show from, for Shadwell. That's right. And he... Another bull we brought in just after but that time was a bull called DMM Decision. Yeah. Uh, and he, well, I judged at Farm Fair that year. And he wasn't actually in the show. Um, but with my son Graham, Graham was with me and he had been looking around the show and seen this bull. And then he was horrified because he thought he was out of a red cow because he saw him standing in a pen. And we went to Miller's the next day or two and he said he'd really liked this bull, but uh, he was out of a red cow. He said, no, he's not out of a red cow. <laughs> oh, but oh, the boy that had him standing in a different stall when they were mucking out his stall. <laughs> so we, we bought him that year and he, he, he did a lot of good to the bad too. And am I right in calculating that I think you've won 12 person sterling champions with uh, Angus? Yes, we've, right, we've yeah. been very lucky over the years. Yeah, we have, and I think we've had five or six reserves as well. So, no, we've been, we've been quite very lucky in that respect. I don't think it's luck at all. You've got some good bulls to put your herd right. But you... And another equally well-recognised and well-respected breeder in the Angus trade came through uh, episode 33 when we were talking about modern livestock enterprises, and that's the Elliots at uh, Rawburn, so both uh, John Elliot Jr. and John Elliot Sr., and it was a pleasure to have them and their wisdom on the podcast, and uh, this is what they had to say about uh, their Angus breeding programme. And I started by asking John Sr. what was uh, the, the, the favourite or maybe one of the best bulls that he had uh, bred there at Rawburn. We actually kept what we thought was the best one. He was a bull called Robert Randolph, and of all the bulls we've ever had, he's really one of my favourites. He was just an outstanding breeder, and we never managed to get semen from him. We did on one occasion, and we sent it by post to get processed, and there were a postal strike, and by the time it arrived, it was past it. Oh but we never another sample because he got an infection in his testicles and that was really the end of him so he was just uh, an outstanding bull and uh, of all the bulls we ever had um, we tried to concentrate on uh, keeping temperament good but his offspring were just unbelievably quiet they, they were the best in my time anyway that, that we ever had and young john added some information about some of the the cows that uh, underpinned the uh, robin herd so that day we, we bought three cows um, from uh, Blaine Canning, very modest money, but everyone had a very big impact with us. But without doubt, uh, Prairie Lane Rosebud 011 was the, the, the best. She, uh, she bred Rommel, Rock Solid, Randolph. Um, she bred a bull called Ravovo that made 10,000. Uh, Belhaven Rousseau, who was female champion at the Highland Show. Um, and I think in she still is the cow that has more progeny than any other cow in the UK herd book. I think she's got 103. Wow. Uh, really, she, she, she did a great job. And as I say, and I remember being down in the yards in Denver where people have their big displays. And I remember turning a corner and I just saw these two bulls in front of me. And they absolutely took my breath away. 
uh, I can still remember it really clearly. And one was Bull Hoff Limited Edition, and the other one was his, his sire, a bull called Hoff Charger. And I remember, I think it was like in our early 20s, running to a public payphone to phone my dad <laughs> to say that I'd seen these bulls. And uh, I remember it was quite funny, but dad told me, you know, I told him about this Hoff Limited Edition. I said, we'll have to get this bull or get something off him. And dad, you know, he kind of laughed, but anyway, he did say, look, go and see what you can do, you know, with the idea of trying to buy him. Well, I went to see Doug Hoff, who'd sold bulls for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And here's this young lad, you know, you know, really interested. And he was very good. He humored me, but uh, we weren't ever going to be able to buy the bull. But we did manage to get semen. And uh, that was the first wave was of the, the offspring was uh, we, we produced the bull, Echester, another one. Uh, Rommel uh, obviously came through. Another one we used ourselves uh, as as well, uh, called Ex um, Extra. I think his name was, but they were the first crop of Hoff Limited editions. And um, as I say, Rommel was maybe the star. And mm. as I say, Alistair Fraser, when he came down, um, he, he was very keen to get the bull. Anyway, that's for sure. The Recent years, as you, some might have read, we've installed a system to measure feed efficiency. Um, it's a large investment. It's singly the largest investment of any piece of machinery we've, we've ever bought. Um, but without doubt, the, the data it's, it's delivering to us is, can be measured no other way. And, and it, I think it's going to be invaluable to, to the future of our herd. Can you give me an idea of what the equipment involves? Yeah. Um, what it is, is um, when the bulls are, are housed through the winter time, they're, they're put on to... Um, a complete ration, an oat-based ration predominantly, but um, the, the feeding's put into um, into feed bunks, which have weigh scales underneath them. And the animals would have an EID tag. So when they put their head in to eat, it, it weighs the, what, what the weight of feeding in the feed bunk. So when the animal starts eating, it gets weighed. And then when the animal pulls out... Through the, it measures it again, the, the, the weight that's left in the bunk, uh -huh. and the difference is then allocated to that animal. So that's how much it's eaten in weight. It's, it's calculated into dry matter. And then every time the animal goes to drink, there's a scales that it weighs itself. So the animal uh, is weighed around seven times a day, and it, it usually goes to the, the, the feed bunk uh, between six and eight times a day. So um, th they're on trial for around 50 days. And over that time, the total amount that they eat and the total amount of weight gain is measured. And in turn, um, the, the company GrowSafe, who uh, get all the data sent live streamed across to the to, across to Canada, um, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, at the end of it, they produce a report that shows us how each bull compares against each other, but also they're able to also show us how they compare against other cattle around the world, which is it's great, and all breeds too. So you compare, you can compare an Angus to a Limousin to a Charley. That makes no difference. It's just simply how much did they eat and how much did they gain. That's incredible forward thinking. When it came to sheer volume of listeners, our Modern Livestock Operations series was uh, extremely popular and probably one of the most popular of all and, and the most popular chap and, and, a, and a tremendous guy that he is too was uh, Archie McGregor and, and son John at, uh, at Alan Fold and uh, this is what they had to say about uh, the early days in, in the cattle and, and Smithfield and uh, later on into the Scottish Blackface Sheep um, Enterprise episode number 28. Mm -hmm. You were uh, asking about the murky past at uh, Smithfield but um, 
we had a lot of fun when, when I went there and, uh, as a boy, really, uh, with Jim McKechnie's team. Um, uh, Jim had weird and wonderful ideas. Um, uh, well, at that time, Shaw's coat dressing was the was the only one that we hadn't all the limo shines and, and the glues that they have nowadays. So Jim would love to make up his own potions. And um, it, it, well, they seemed to work. I mean, Jim was a master dressing cattle and a master of producing cattle with hair. Uh, and I mean, some of them didn't smell very good, but <laughs> you'll have heard of the old days, Andy, when, when they, Angus cattle especially, when, when they, a little arsenic was fed to, to, mm-hmm. to make it grow. Well, Jim got this into his head that he would like to do something like this, and, and he, he, he had heard that he, some sheep dip contained arsenic, so he got me to delve into that and see if we had any. And, and I did come across some that had a wee bit, so I gave it to him, and, and he, he, so he, he was spraying them every day with, with this. And I don't think he killed any, but it seemed to, and he seemed to produce plenty here. So um, another thing with Jim, he, well, both Jim McKechnie and Jim Donald, if, if there was a beast of their food, the first thing they would look for was his Moody Hillocks or molehills to that end. Uh, and and uh, as boys were sent out to look for, for uh, earth to, to put into the cattle feeding. So, and the, 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 the best place to get it was, was a graveyard. So um, <laughs> we would go around the graveyard looking for uh, food from a newly dug grave. But, um, but uh, anyway, it seemed to work, I don't know. I've never fed it to my cattle. <laughs> The Vagabond actually has sired a thousand pedigree registered calves and it must have done Alifold yeah. prefix a lot of good and your bank balance a lot of good as well. Aye, going back to Jeff Bell and Starlight. Well, you dressed as I actually dressed Starlight for, for Jeff. So. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, Starlight had a story too. She, uh, she was out of pure limousine cow and uh, I weaned her, which was just a wee tot, and I, I thought I would just try it, Callie, because I knew there was a show folk going, and uh, I took her there. She was 200 kilos uh, at, at, at the Cali that day, and she made five pounds a kilo. She made a thousand. And Jeff bought her, and, uh, well, Jeff had bought a lot of cattle from us. He, he bought breeding cattle from us as well, and um, that uh, summer after he bought uh, Starlight, um, he was coming out of Bedlands Gate, and so he was having a dispersal. So my father and I went down to the dispersal, uh, and, and I, actually I went down with the intention of buying a Starlight back, but uh, Jeff was quite sure I wasn't going to get her back. So he, <laughs> he, he actually, it was his grandson. He, he bought it in his grandson's name, anyway. so it was shown at Smithfield in, in, in his grandson's name. Uh, I, th- I thought she was a super animal, a, a tremendous shape of an animal. And we talk about the, the, the black-faced sheep? Well, actually, when I left college, at that time we had, uh, had 4,000 black ewes and we had 200 cows, and, and um, I, I just loved and dreamed black-faced sheep, and I wanted to, to come back home and be a shepherd, more or less, uh, but there wasn't a place for me, so I reluctantly got landed in the cattle side, and... <laughs> But of course, once I get once I get into it, I really I really love that side as well. So it was it was quite quite fortunate that that happened then. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, as far as the blackies go, um, in the sixties we we started a breeding flock and we bought 
blackies from some of the top flocks at the time, we Conachan, Gas, Trollos, Cairn Jern, Wheatshaw, and these were uh, Kill as well, These and these were the basis of our blackie flock. And uh, we went to Conachan every year and bought ewe lambs, our trailer loaded about 50 ewe lambs every year, and uh, one of these ewe lambs, uh, when, when bred to a, a midlock top that we bought for 3,200, produced a lamb that we sold for 10,000 in 1978, and now that was the first five-figure up of any breed sold at Lanark. Wow. And you're still at the top of the breed 30 and 40 years on, fast forward to this year, 80,000 for a top that goes back to one of your show use, Archie, and another one. 38,000, 26,000, 20,000, one hell of a trade, and they're all by a, a, a three and a half thousand uh, tall hurler. How come he came so cheap? The 20,000 one was that. Uh, we actually bought, bought some semen off 160,000 tall hurler, and uh, we flushed a U to him, and, uh, and we, we got a 20,000 and an 18,000 one out of her, too. So. But the rest of them were, were mainly off the, the three and a half thousand. We've well, been quite successful with the Hurley Tups over the years. The last one that probably uh, did a great job for us was, was one that cost 60,000. But, but there was five of us bottom in partnership. and uh, uh, So he wasn't too daft. And uh, he actually bred, he bred five bigger Tups for every one of the five. So he wasn't so dear, but this one here, the, the Delhara, you, you've uh, three and a half thousand pound when you got him in a in a partnership as well. So, yeah, yeah, I, I was just it was a piece of luck really because well we were dead keen and there were two good Delhara tops we thought in the pen that day, uh, and uh, we were swithering about them. But that, that, this the one that was going in second was the one that we actually liked best, and uh, um, so we thought we'd have to pay a bit of money for them. So. We, we were speaking to Michael Wood uh, before they went in the ring, and, and uh, he said he would like to share them. I think we would have we've gone to a lot of money, well, quite a lot of money for them. Uh, the other one actually made 60000 <laughs> <laughs> As I'm getting a bit along in the twos, I decided that to speak to some of the up-and-coming younger generation in the livestock world, they would be handy to have somebody a little bit near their age. So I canvassed Kaylee Kennedy in to uh, to speak to some of the youngsters, and she did a fantastic job, and uh, it was great to hear the enthusiasm of all of them, and uh, probably the, the biggest lesson of that, in fact, one of the biggest lessons of, of any episode we've ever had was a, a young man called Gareth Small from Northern Ireland, and you can feel the passion and enthusiasm that Gareth has for the livestock showing world coming through uh, exceptionally in uh, episode 47. I suppose I would like to maybe classify myself now as probably first generation farm yeah. and maybe through the what we've done ourselves but dope dad definitely not not farming background at all although that's probably a wee bit unfair in saying that in the fact is that dad would have had an uncle called Jim McGill and when dad would have been a young man a young boy actually he at the time would have been recognised as one of the biggest cattle dealers in Ireland and would have been one of the first people to export those blue-grey type females into Scotland and the north of England. And Dad would have lived beside a mart. And one of the funniest stories I always remember Granny saying, and, and to be honest, in hindsight, it's not funny, was Dad mitched off school and got the bus, went down to Belfast. Now, you've got to remember, this was at the start of the Troubles and spent all day in Alums. Now, Alums was really, really famous back then. 
and nobody knew where he was. No mobile phones, no nothing. Dad landed back home that night with a lift, and like I can just imagine what Granny was like that night. <laughs> you guys are scared. Huh? He had bought some cattle in Carlisle, and I'm pretty sure two of them came from James Little's dad, a little of the guards. And I always remember Dad loved. Yeah. He actually visited Little Guards, one of his favourite places he's ever been to, and always the nicest people. And he always speaks to them so so highly, and took these cattle back. So pure greenhorn Kaylee went back and did Birmingham and Smithfield that year with the help of Pete Bodley and like like stuff a legend. Like he went across with a heifer, a pedigree blue heifer. She was locally bought. Her name was Ballygrange Matilda, and. First ever goal, went across, had reserve, overall champion at Birmingham, heifer champion, pedigree champion, then went on to Smithfield, and I think again he had maybe reserve overall heifer champion, pedigree champion, and like when he seen Smithfield and experienced it for himself, that was it. Like it was, I suppose it maybe came, and some people might say a bad obsession, but in our opinion it was a healthy obsession, and that was always the goal, was to try and win Smithfield and if you speak to any of the older generation that have been there and of course Andy who I would then have met in 2000 and I mean like I'd heard about Andy Fraser and his I'd have heard about him through the shorts and how good he was at the clipping and that and just meeting people like that and that that's what Smithfield was all about the fact was in London the fact the whole ambience the atmosphere the ring just everything about it, the royalty being there, and I give a few stories to say later, like we were very lucky because of George and that royalty <laughs> and things like that, but I suppose yeah. that that 1986 year just, I suppose it put Dad on a path that never really came off, and so it was probably put me on the same path as well. And then I suppose oh. Dad got introduced and was talking to Walter Short and things developed on, and then Walter took over the showing of the cattle after a conversation where he sort of pretty much said to Dad, and if anybody knows Walter, they just know this is Walter down to the tea. And it wasn't big-headed, it wasn't arrogance, this was just Walter Short summed up. He just pretty much said to Dad that if he if we let Walter have our cattle, he guaranteed we'd win the shows. And Hi. that's just Walter down to the tea. And to be fair, within two years... He delivered because in the second year, Kaylee, we we literally won everything. Like we took, he was he was so far ahead of his time. It's not even funny. Like he was doing, him and Trevor were doing things that people are only catching on to now. Like I remember at one time, our cattle were in an Iceland freezer. You know what I mean? Like to get the hair to grow on them, and yeah. we I would apply a lot of yeah. principles. I would have learnt off them. Like like the cattle were in tiny pens. And then they were exercised and things like that. There's just just two people are way ahead of the time. And so we got round to Alums and we had Cross and we got to the Scottish Winter Fair. Now, I'll have to be honest, I don't really remember much about the Scottish because I was under a bit of pressure that day. Steph had shown Khaleesi all year and she was actually in a trip in Canada along with a few of the other girls that had won it for a competition. And... So we got there and Duncan McGregor came in that morning and he could see I was under pressure and he was like, Gareth, would you calm down? You've got this in the bag. And I was like, looked at him and he says, do you think? And he goes, yeah, but it's not with that one. <laughs> and I looked at him and he goes, if ever there's a beast for Will Owen, 
it's that yellow Charlie Heifer. And he was right. So yeah. we had a great day that day with Candy Floss and she won the heifers exhibitor bread overall and was actually the first ever live scott champion so that was a, a lovely thing to say for us and her being homebred and then Bye. it was full steam ahead for smithfield and to be honest that's very very uh fulfilling for us because from the moment dad set foot as a young person seeing the band at smithfield that was always his dream was to be the first yeah. Irish person to win Smithfield. And the fact that we did it together, we did the work together, we found the beast. You know, it was just a lovely, lovely finish to the to an amazing year. Nice. And, and very, very poignant in that year was Trevor was a great help that year, Trevor Short, Walter's son. He made and designed yeah. the feed, which was the original feed his dad fed our show cat lawn for them. They ate that all year. Um, and Trevor was at every show and did the journey with me. And I suppose as a family and two families, it was just a, a lovely way just to maybe just finish off a, a story that should have been finished by somebody else, but just circumstances didn't allow it. One of the greatest pleasures that I've had on Top Lines and Tales is befriending a gentleman called Dr. Bob Hoke from Colorado. And Bob, as you'll know, has been a regular presenter on, on this Top Lines and Tales podcast. And Bob has also brought me in some very interesting guests onto the podcast, uh, some of whom he knows personally. And, and we're going to kick off the, the, some of these USA episodes with uh, three gentlemen together, which is Dr. Bob uh, Glenn Klippenstein and Dave Nichols, a well-known Angus breeder, and these three guys are hilarious together, and uh, and what an inspiring bunch of gentlemen they really are, and, and this episode uh, with Dave Nichols absolutely was, was fantastic, I thought. Episode number 32. This could be interesting, but gosh, we have Glenn Klippenstein with us, and, and Glenn, uh, I think, should be well-known to quite a few of your listeners, and uh, I mean, Glenn is just a a giant of our industry in terms of the cattle he's bred and all the national champions and the performance and the service to our industry has been outstanding and he's gone right on to be a a breed exec at one point and 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 dave nichols is another largest seed stock producer in the midwest by a lot and um, i mean he's been involved in more research and again more service we probably have the two people that have been involved in more service to our industry than any two people that we could pick. And so and this is going to be about Dave Nichols, but I think we have a really exciting group to talk about Dave. And Dave Nichols has one of the really great programs that ever existed, and I, I think that'll come out over time. And Glenn, could you kind of open us up and give, give an idea of what Dave's about? Well, sure. And I think it's very appropriate that we introduce our subject, Dave Nichols, uh, to those who may not know him well, it's uh, kind of hard to believe that some don't, but there, I'm sure there are. Uh, he's basically a bigger-than-life, very recognizable figure, especially in the United States, but the, he has no bounds, really. Uh, he's of the age that uh, young ladies opened the door for him. It used to be that, uh, <laughs> being the gentleman that he is, he used to enjoy doing that, but uh, he also enjoys having them look to him with, with some fondness and respect so that's who he is he believes in liberty capitalism entrepreneurship and we the people he's a real american and uh he's an innovator a trailblazer got a lot of curiosity he soaks up information for like a sponge 
he sees potential in almost everything, even obstacles. And that's, that's something that we can all learn. And he's a pioneer with a tried and true values while having still the flexibility. And that's, that's not easy to be a current and futuristic and evolving all the time. And his feet are on the ground, his eyes are in the future. And that, that's just the kind of guy he is. And his, oh, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, this is obviously a UK podcast, but Dave does kind of represent what America is about. And I think if you want to feel for one of our really great Americans, Dave sure is it. And I think one of the really great stories, and I, I wrote up some biography on Dave for the Saddle and Sirloin Award, and in which he was, had his portrait hung in the Saddle and Sirloin. What was that, 2016? And, and uh, he wanted to start feeding steers. And his dad made him go down to the bank and take out a loan at nine years old. And then he, he wanted to start feeding more steers. So he, he went down and he, he, he uh, put up his collateral as his bike. So, I mean, from nine years old, he's, he's had the entrepreneurial bug and then the capitalism that uh, Glenn talked about. And at some point, he kind of got past feeding steers. He won the champion steer at the county fair. And here he had more money in the champion steer than he had in his, just the cattle he was feeding in general because he's feeding all kinds of show glow and everything else. And, and he, he wanted to get into heifers. And uh, so he switched to Angus heifers. And he and his dad went ahead and said, well, as long as we're going to have some, we might as well have a few more. And, and so they bought cattle together. And uh, But he bought the pick of the whole deal. This was back in the 50s. And, of course, he got a little tiny belt buckle animal. And back then, you know, ideal didn't come above your belt buckle or your waist. That's why they called it, and it was it was just perfect, wasn't it, Dave? You won right. champion at the county fair. Yeah, I, I won champion at the county fair, and uh, and was on the front page of the Dare County Free Press above the fold. And boy, I I tell you what, I I was in tall cotton. There you go. Uh, there you go. That is until this my champion heifer and the bull that I had purchased that my dad wanted no part of. Uh, this a heifer had this calf that the head was swelling and, and, and bloating and so on. And uh, the uh, Angus Fieldman came out and said, knock him in the head and don't tell anybody you've got him. Uh, the vet said it was probably a uterine infection. And uh, our extension director said he didn't know what the hell it was, but he knew somebody that did. And he took me to Iowa State to meet Dr. Jay Lush. Uh, well, I was 14 years old, and uh, he uh, took me under his wing because he was so excited. Uh, hell, uh, dwarfism was a terrific problem in the Angus, Herefords, and Shorthorns. They all had them. And, and uh, for, for a young 14-year-old that wanted to know more and know how to do it and all the rest, and so he sent me up uh, breeding my uh, heifers to uh, carrier bulls. And we uh, developed a herd that uh, did not have the uh, dwarfism gene. And, uh, and explain and what dwarfism is, Dave. It's well, a the, defect, the, right? It's a defect that uh, it, it, it occurs in humans that for some reason long bone growth stops. Uh, I sold my first bulls. Nichols Ross sold their first bulls. On a Saturday, we read an ad in the local paper uh, that I made. I didn't wasn't back on the want ads. I was on a on a page ad. I, we read the ad saying that we're guaranteed not to sire dwarfs. The 
our bulls. I had three for sale, uh, about uh, somewhere between five and ten trucks and pickups pulled in the yard at noon. And it was not because of me and my ad. It was because at the bottom of the ad, it said it's guaranteed by Merrill Nichols. And to this day, to this day, we... That's my dad. That's my dad. And he said if a man's uh, word isn't any good, his bond isn't either. And to this day, every bull that we sell, we sell with a handshake instead of a signature. Growth and feed intake. Why plantation was measuring feed intake in 1965 by all the bulls that were uh, uh, on test had an individual box stall of their own. And uh, I was impressed with the females, uh, but during the and the whole deal, we were having a conversation with Jim Lingo, and uh, I called him Mr. Lingo, but he received a letter from the Angus Journal as we were sitting there talking in his office, and the Angus Journal prohibited him from offering and selling semen on purebred Angus herd sires. Uh, Mr. Lingo took that letter and threw it across the room to Dick Whaley and me to read, and then he called in his uh, secretary to reply to the Angus Journal to cancel their current contract, and he would never advertise with them again. So that uh, that tells you uh, uh, of the time span, but uh, it was really a beginning of, uh, of applying some of the knowledge and so on that he had when he was uh, uh, raising Jersey cattle and so on, and, and uh, it just made sense to him like it did to us if they you're going to weigh milk out of a cow. Why wouldn't you weigh the beef and the bull? For a guy that's really, really into measuring, that had to be a, a, a dramatic, traumatic moment at, at Y Plantation. Uh, because uh, Dave is one of those guys that uh, he wants to produce a product that won't drive people to poultry or fish. I mean, we're in competition. And what happened with the Angus Journal, I think, is they were trying to stay away from competition by utilizing advanced genetics via AI. Mm. And I think that's what made them so angry, because we were keeping ourselves from being competitive. So that's for sure. And Glenn, didn't you go on your honeymoon? Weren't you looking at Cavill too the whole time? <laughs> I'm guilty. <laughs> I think you took C.K. Allen, too, with you and his wife and, uh, and looked at cattle the, your whole honeymoon. You guys are just two romantic devils, I'll tell you what. But, I, but I, I will tell you a story that pertaining to that. In Colorado, there was a man by the name of Otto Fulcher, who was at that time the Hereford breeder in North America. Mm-hmm. And somehow or another, we got to meet him. Mm-hmm. And he did not want to speak to me. He was a bridge player. So was my new bride. They got to play bridge together, and I sat in a corner to mope. <laughs> it was, as I said, such a pleasure to listen to those three older gentlemen. And then Bob brought somebody else to my attention, uh, somebody that he's worked closely with, which was Craig Uden at the Dar feedlot. And if some of the figures we've heard in the last episode were eye-opening, this really was uh an exceptional outfit that uh, that Craig runs there at Dar Feedlot, and some of the st- statistics on on this uh, are just mind blowing. Craig runs the Dar Feedlot there, which runs uh, forty five thousand head of cattle there in Nebraska. In fact, the episode was uh, was so long and so interesting, we split it into two. But here's what uh, Craig had to say at the beginning in episode number twenty nine. 
Can I ask, um, Craig, why did you choose this particular region? What are the conditions like there, and what's your average rainfall compared to, you know, to around and about? Well, as I said, I grew up on an operation east of here, and that that, that entity in the, in the eastern part of, the, of Nebraska uh, is more humid out here. We had the drier climate. Uh, the opportunity out here was immense because there was there was a lot of acres, and uh, irrigation was uh, some of the irrigation that was developed in the 30s and 40s. Canal irrigation really made this area pop because there was a lot of uh, dry land back in the 30s and 40s. But with the irrigation, there was plenty of available feed. Uh, there's a river that runs right between our two locations. There's an interstate system, and uh, there was packing plants out here as well. So there was a golden opportunity. It had everything you needed to be in the cattle business. It had feed, water, and uh, processing uh, right wrapped in one. So, And and you grew the operation. Uh, I'm going to ask you how you grew the operation. And uh, now runs, I believe, 45,000 head of feeding cattle. Is that about right? It's a staggering figure. Yeah, that is about right. It's, it's like eating an elephant one bite at a time as we yeah. got more customers and more demand. Uh, there were some other operations, as, as we were speaking earlier about the 80s were tough. So I would rent some pens from other locations, and then once we were stable enough, we would continue to add capacity to these facilities. Our last major expansion was in the 2005-06 uh, range uh, when we bought another facility and then built onto it uh, up through 2010. And uh, uh, we're trying to balance our resources out of here as far as having adequate labor, not getting too big because we still do have winter weather that we have to take care of the cattle. Uh, making sure we have plenty of resources to go with our feed ingredients coming in and also our, our affluent, our manure and water management going out. Uh, so uh, we're, we're not a megalot that has 100,000 in one spot. We are 45,000 in two locations. Okay, and how much area would that cover? Just just. Well, we we figure it in acres. Uh, it would take about a section of land, which would be 640 acres, and I believe that that, that would be about where where the cattle pens would be. Uh, so you, we we source a lot of cattle out of Nebraska, and we we basically pull cattle from many different parts of the United States. Uh, I can hear people asking this question uh, about feeding these animals and, and Dar will buy in local feed. How much forage and grain does it take to feed that lot? I mean, well, we, we're going to put up about 70,000 ton of silage. We're, we're going to put up about, about 126, 130,000 ton of, of corn. And then we're going to purchase somewhere in the neighborhood of 75, to 85,000 ton of distiller's grain, which is manufactured from the corn. It's a byproduct, and that's the only byproduct we feed at this location. The aftermath of ethanol production, which adds some protein uh, back into the ration. And then the alfalfa hay or, or hay-type products would be also equivalent to about 70,000 ton of, of, of hay. So it, wow. takes, it takes a pretty good charge of feed in order to run this operation <laughs> another equally fascinating character from the usa was uh, lee leachman from the leachman cattle company and uh, again the statistics of the number of animals and the, and the science and the technology that goes behind his breeding operation is mind-blowing and uh, lee was 
was on a more recent podcast, podcast number 86. Um, uh, another fascinating uh, interview. Bob and I previously did a podcast, Lee, on, on your grandfather, Lee, and your uncle, uh, Lester, um, who has to be said to, to our listeners here, will know it, uh, probably two of the, the greatest names in the Angus breed in their generation and uh, you know, stalwarts of, of men and uh, went there, won everything and, and very synonymous with, with the Angus and uh, back in the days of, of Ankeny and, and when they... Uh, they won pretty much everything at the at the Chicago International and everywhere else, and uh, and now we've gone full circle. Uh, uh, back to yourself in 2022 with uh, Leachman's apparently uh, still going strong. Yes, we are. No, it's a very interesting history for sure, Andy. And they um, had a great great success um, preparing what we would, I guess, call belt buckle cattle today, Bob. Um, they were based out upstate New York, and it was about visual appraisal and. They would they would routinely uh, halter and show bulls to visitors, Andy. In fact, uh, I think those were early days back before the uh, electric shears we have today, and they would use scissors to trim the cattle. And uh, they would also uh, they were at the early stages of artificial insemination before freezing, and so they would extend fresh semen and use it to breed cows so that that was a very different time from where we are today but it was all about um, having champions and then selling those champions to other breeders and uh, because of the limitations of ai you know actual ownership of those bulls was quite valuable and they sold bulls for what comparatively in 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 the same real dollars uh, would have been exceptional prices and of course back in that era um, the breeding was dominated by uh, wealthy uh, industrialists. It's a common theme throughout the history of our family. We were always looking to utilize everything available. And so when the, ch- when the changes came, we were looking to go out and find the genetics that would lead the change. Okay. Um, and I, I think we're all focused on that. So as Bob alluded to, we, we worked very early on to make sure that as we bred crossbred hybrid composite animals that we kept the phenotypic uniformity to basically eliminate that as an objection and i think as you look at the stabilizer today you certainly see that you see a tremendous uniformity in the way and type of those cattle i mean it's no different than any other breed those of us familiar with the breeds we can drive down the road and say oh look there's a herd of limousines there's a herd of charlets a herd of angus Oop, there's a herd of of south devon and there's a herd of stabilizer we can see from the uniformity of type that the breed is what it is. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I, if you come from a big family, you know that you can make the same sire and the same dam and get lots of variation, Andy. Um, <laughs> so, so it sort of comes down to, to selection and discipline. Um, but it turns out that you, when you made a purebred to a purebred, you can get almost as much variation, essentially, on all the traits, the equivalent amount of variation as you get when you made hybrid to hybrid. The only exception to that are these handful of traits, you know, horn polled and color that are determined by very few genes. Yeah, we're in the top five seed stock breeders in the United States today. We'll merchandise about 2,500 bulls this year. Okay. Of those, approximately 500 would be purebreds. They would be Angus, Red Angus, and Charlet. And then the other 2,000 would be stabilizers. Okay. And so, you know, we're about... Uh, whatever it is, 75, 80% uh, composites. Mm-hmm. And certainly that's our, our, our largest growing market. We, we still use the purebreds. We use Charlet as a terminal cross. Okay. 
Um, and of course, we raise red Angus and black Angus um, because those breeds offer so much to any breeding program because of their large databases and their valuable traits. In one of our earlier episodes, episode number 10, I think probably one of the first ones that uh, Dr. Bob and I did together, we looked at the fascinating story behind the Chicago exhibition, um, the, one of the greatest livestock shows in the world, and more to the point behind the Chicago Union stockyards and the fascinating figures and fascinating times when uh, this was one of the biggest um, uh, stockyards and beef producers in the world and uh, Bob and I had a had a, a bit of research to do around this one but it was a, it was a, I thought a great episode and I found it I found it really interesting I mean it's, it's hard to compare Smithfield to, to uh, the international Chicago international this guy's in Smithfield has been going on for a couple hundred years and and that lasted 75 years certainly during the 75 years uh it was it was really the super bowl i mean there would be people come from all over the world the stands would be packed the aisles would be packed it, and people would be all dressed up and yeah it was quite an event but uh but it didn't didn't have the lasting power of of some of the shows you have that's for darn sure and it was a correlation between the two shows because I think the international originally did model itself on the Royal Smithfield show. I, you know, I, th I think so. And I, I think, you know, they always also tried to have a, a judge over for a, at least like the Supreme Champion Steers to take out some of the politics. And so, yeah, th there was a lot of things that they modeled after that. And I mean, and, and it just being an event, you know, was modeled after that. And Like Smithfield, it was the, the last show of the season, really. So it was the one where everybody got together and it's the big last hurrah. So it, it gave it the atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, and it was, you know, some of these guys would be out. We were going to talk about this, I think, later, the riding of the rail, what we called it here. And they might be on the show road for eight months, yeah. you know, battling with each other. But it meant more to, to win at, at uh, Chicago in that whole other eight months, it was well. Now, you've mentioned that the show was held in an exhibition hall in the stockyard, but let's just take a few minutes to chat about the Chicago Union stockyards and uh, what they represented. And, Bob, they'd be before your time, I guess, but uh, they were very significant, and you've got a lot of research around this. Oh, I mean, it was, it was kind of unbelievable. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine. They had one square mile is what the facility was and uh, I think they had 475 acres of pens alone uh, that they had they where they did business of the cattle and then they would it was a terminal stockyard so they had the packing plants there and they had all the major packing plants plus uh, specialty plants like kosher kosher kills and those kinds of things and I mean it was it was something to behold it, it, uh, in its day it produced 82 percent of the red meat in the United States came out of Chicago. It was an incredible and an extraordinary statistics. The yards could hold, could house something like 21,000 cattle and 22,000 sheep and 75,000 pigs and, and uh, the 2,700 pens, as, of cattle pens, as far as the eye could see. I mean, it's, uh, we have livestock markets in the UK, but uh, th th this is just on a, on a totally different scale. It, it was actually open on Christmas day in 1865 which was at the end of our civil war uh f to free the slaves and uh 
And then it ran, like you said, through 1971. Then the show ran through 75. But it was, I mean, it was a tremendous, tremendous feat. And they they came up with other terminal stockyards. The last one was in 1921 in Los Angeles, California, on the West Coast. But nothing ever compared to Chicago. And and it was built on, on swampland, pretty much. But it was owned by the railroad companies themselves, or at least they bought the land originally in, in and around that, that area of Chicago. Well, most all the stockyards, including uh, Chicago, they were consortiums of railroads. Some of them were owned by single railroads, but usually it was consortium of railroads because, I mean, their bread and butter was hauling livestock. And, and, they, and you know, they would take them from all parts of the country to these terminal stockyards. So it was it was really a um, it was a cash cow for them. So they needed a place to take these. That's, that's a bad pun, but they needed a place to take these cattle uh, to have them process. So these stockyards came into being. And there was also a little bit of trade of feeder cattle where they would bring younger calves to these stockyards and then they would go out to a farmer feeder to be finished. So there was a little bit of that trade, but most of it was terminal where they'd be processed. But it was swamp land where they built it on. It was really low quality land. And and uh, and it was also not a very good thing environmentally. There was a river that went into... Um, went into Lake Michigan, very short, a short distance, and then they dug a canal from the stockyards into the river. So the 475 acres of, uh, of the pens and all the other things around it and all the everything in the packing plants all drained into this canal. It was called Bubbly Creek. And then, then right into the river and right into the uh, Lake Michigan. So it was, it was not a very good thing environmentally, especially early on when they didn't have quite the same amount of usage of the offal, uh, and they dumped some of that, meaningly the guts and stuff. Uh, over time, we used everything, but gosh, it, it was bad. I mean, that, that canal used to, Bubbly Creek used to catch fire kind of regularly. It was catch it fire. Was, it, was it, it, wouldn't, it, sure. it wouldn't smell too great either. I wouldn't no, think No, no, no. Matter of fact, there were, at times it would tar over, but believe it or not, people could walk <laughs> on it. But I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to fall through, that's for sure. No. I think that'd be I, the I, last you'd be seeing. But... I've got that in, in bite. 1890, so this is into its 20 years, they were processing something like 9 million cattle a year uh, coming through that, coming through the packing plants there. And, and, and the packing plants themselves, uh, the name Philip Armar is, is, is one that I think, uh, if you pronounce it that way, is one, one of the first major plants there. And it was an operation that was way before its time with some incredible mechanisms for hoisting the carcasses and, and processing. And this stuff was, was futuristic in its day, wasn't it? Oh, it absolutely was. We, we, we pronounce it a little cruder over here. We armor, <laughs> not not as you would pronounce it in, in Europe, obviously. But uh, but armor had this, I mean, basically it was set up on gravity. So they would bring the livestock up these ramps, and then when they would be processed, they would come down through a, a, a disassembly plant as opposed to an assembly plant, and it would come down with gravity down through the plant until it was ready to be ultimately cooled and uh and the so it was it was really a tremendous thing and, and the word is that that's where henry ford got his idea for the assembly line to make model t cars <laughs> that, that's and finally staying with the americans perhaps my favorite episode anna and a slight pet project of mine, we got to discussing uh, Jack Dick from Blackwatch Farms. And again, probably the most, one of the most listened to episodes that we've ever had on, 
on top lines and tails and uh, Jack Dick, a fascinating character and, and made history wherever he went and uh, did more in one lifetime than a lot of people would do in, in, in a lot more. How did you come about uh, getting your curiosity about Jack Dick? And I discovered him when I was researching for uh, the history of the Angus Cattle in a book that I was writing in the UK, and this guy that kept turning up at the bull sales and throwing money about, and the more I looked at him and spoke to a few people that had met him as well, his story started to fascinate me to the point that I thought, wow, that'll make a great movie. So uh, eventually, after I just did a bit more research and uh, ended up writing a book about him. But he was certainly greedy, and I think that's probably a failing of a lot of megalomaniac uh, entrepreneurs. You, you've got to temper that greed a little bit, but he, he liked to gamble, and uh, and he was smart enough to choose the right odds. And, uh, yeah, sure enough, he got into the stock market, and uh, next thing, they where, who, where's this whisker come from? And he just uh, he just started overtaking everybody else and, and selling everybody the dream and the story, and, wow, he, he made it big very quick. He bought the farm from Bing Crosby's brother, the singer Bing Crosby's brother down there in Dutchess County, and, and it wasn't cheap either. It wasn't like he just bought a little place. It was a, it was a hell of a spread, and he bought it, and that's you know where, where he, he was at there, and his dreams, as soon as he got there, of course, his, his dreams just got bigger again, and uh, crazy, I think you'd probably say, to be fair. A lot of people would do anyway. To start with, he went back to college to learn about genetics and husbandry, which is I find quite surprising because he doesn't seem the sort of man that would uh, sit behind a desk and, 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 and listen to a lecture for very long. But uh, I guess when he was there, he'd have made, a, made his share of contacts and then he'd work out. I think he bought all the – managed to get all the – Angus uh, journals shipped over from from Scotland, the Aberdeen Angus journals over there and all the papers, and he'd sit and read it all up. And he did his research and decided uh, Angus Cattler was something he'd like to get into. And he sought out a top manager. And I, you know, one of these things in these in these folks that get into these, what eventually ends up being a scheme, one of the things when I've done my research is, is they've always hired really top people. It was called Blackwatch Farms. Uh, this was in 1961, and he wanted something a bit more Scottish to make his sales pitch sound uh, sound more convincing. Um, and he, he didn't persuade these investors to put money into literally buying a couple of cows and having them well looked after, and they could reap the profits from the sale of the calves at the low tax rates. And we'll touch on the taxes in a minute, but with a neat bit of marketing, I think I might have even invested in that one. It certainly sounded convincing to start with. He bought uh, the bull uh, out of the purse sale that year? He, he did, yeah. He bought a bull in, in, in 1963 for 60,000 guineas, which I think back then there'd be three dollars to the guinea so we're talking american terms 150 180,000 bucks a bull called lynn dirtis of Vols, and uh he was the record price angus bull then and believe it or not it's still the record price angus bull ever sold at the uk auction 60 years later uh, and when he landed at jfk airport jack had the entire world's press all waiting there on the runway and in and uh, with the cameras and the newspaper people and the tv crews and everything all trying to get a glimpse of this of this bull that he'd bigged up and and, and made, paid this world record price for and they they actually rolled out a red carpet believe it or not when the plane landed off the back of the plane they rolled i've seen the photographs rolled the red carpet and lindy he became called lindy in, in, in america and he walked down this red carpet to the all these flashing cameras like some sort of film star it was an incredible uh, 
publicity stunt and then uh, they loaded him into the back of a um, of a Brinksmat uh, security wagon which he just about fit in, <laughs> just about fit in I guess through the back door and then uh, so an armored car <laughs> yeah and, and off, okay. off they went at great speed with with a with a cavalcade of, of, of motorbike outriders on the front and the back and the lights all flashing and all the the the, the, the news hounds all frantically writing their story and uh, and yeah it was fantastic marketing and he made the front page show just pretty much all around the world he knew how to sell that story that's for sure and uh, he hired four massive big top circus marquees huge things and then positioned uh, put set them up in around the barns and then positioned all the bulls and, and the sale cattle around the outside behind perspex screens so they could all the cattle were looking in uh, and these guys are partying on the inside of these guys and they're all in their in their best attire and and they and all these guests five six hundred of them and more were all dined on angus beef that had been shouldered into the room by by behind a scottish piper and and uh, and these bulls all looking in watching them eating what a spectacle can you can you imagine that investors were coming in all the time and dick just kept buying more cows and and from everywhere and Unfortunately, not all of them were, were good ones, as you alluded to early on. And in some of the cases, the, the cows weren't even there at all. They were just a, a piece of paper and a number. And uh, and farms, too, he'd be, he'd be buying or, or leasing and renting farms above market value because he was cash, cash rich. They, these, were his, these were his cash cows. Anybody wanting their money out would be hit with exorbitant depreciation values plus the cost of the keep and the legal contracts and the lawyers and by the time they came to pull the money out, it would be barely worth it. So, you know, they, they, they find out their investment wasn't very good. So, this scam. Uh, who were all these investors? So, I need to be careful not to name and shame here, but they were singers, um, famous actors, uh, famous politicians, any number of senators. And, and that went right the way up to the White House and, and uh, uh, top sportsmen and mobsters. It was like a who's who, Bob. I mean, it runs out of new investors so we get a bit of bad press and people stop bringing their money and the whole thing just implodes and just blows away on the wind. And Bernie Madoff, who who was named after the Ponzi scheme, he was he in, in the Jack Dick thing? Did he, did he get caught in it? <laughs> Bernie did. And I think that's a great part of this story, to be fair, that the great Bernie Madoff, yeah, he took a hit of about 85 grand in 1965, which would be a fair chunk of money. Well, Bermek sued him when they realized their 30 million investment was actually only worth 3 million they got the lawyers after him fairly quickly but uh, he'd been paid a lot of that in shares and as soon as he got his shares he went straight down the bank and cashed them in before the news got out of their real worth so he, he had the money in shares and so Jack basically walked away with it with, from the wholesale with a great pile of cash and uh, and and then he spent a hell of a lot of that on lawyers I think trying to keep Burmack on, on the back foot or keep him off his back and, and also the tax man off his back because of the money he'd made and, and not declared and then just about every other person in the u.s off his back as well i think and creditors did start come knocking at the door he'd come he'd send them away with a piece of priceless art that's maybe worth you know, 50 or 100 thousand and uh, off they'd go and uh, in some cases some of that maybe maybe wasn't real and, and there's a lot of stories there again and I, I can't be too careful really but that uh, that business i'm afraid has its core of corruption just like any other and jack would see the way to to make it work for him. But he finally had to sell that out too, didn't he? Yeah, he did. In, in 1974, his, his collection came under the hammer at Sotheby's in London and they'd, the American tax office and the British tax office authorities had, had 
had an agreement that if the paintings were to be sold, they'd have to be sold in London and not in the US. And um, yeah, they were sold in Sotheby's in a great sale, which a lot of the rich and famous, again, the collectors were at, and, and it still goes down in folklore, this particular sale. And a painting called Goldfinger, which was by the great George Stubbs, um, who's was then and still is the high, most highly sought after um, sporting artist. And uh, Goldfinger made two hundred thousand in in nineteen seventy four. I think Jack had given about fifty grand for it. So yeah, he'd made his money on that one and a lot more besides. And that was a record at the time, of course, in uh, in his house. And he was sitting there boasting about how money was made round to go round, and the next time he was going to make. I think he said something like he made a million when he was twenty and. 10 million by the time he was 30 and now he's going to shoot for 100 million by the time he was 40 and uh, boasting away and then uh, he clutched his chest and and uh, and died on the way to hospital of a heart attack at just at 40 years old so a man who did more, more things in, in in one lifetime than most people could do in five but Another great series that gave me a fantastic, huge pleasure was uh, discussing what we called legendary cattlemen, and most of these legendary cattlemen uh, are in the past. And uh, one of them harps back again to the Angus that we were talking about earlier on, and been a, a massive listener and a fascinating guy was a, a man called J.E. Kerr from Harveston, which was on episode 13. And then this time I was chatting with Duncan McLaren, who uh, had some information on him, and uh, his father, Willie McLaren, who's sadly no longer with us either and another legendary cattleman um jay kerr was uh william mclaren's hero and uh let's hear kerr's story from uh episode 13 jay ernest kerr 1877 to 1960 will probably be recognized as one of the most successful breeders of aberdeen angus cattle of all time but not only that but one of the longest serving spanning six decades in two centuries his home at Harveston Castle dates back to the mid-18th century and was regularly visited by Robert Burns himself, who was a family friend. Duncan, your father would have been one of the very few people still alive who would have actually have met Kerr, would that be right? Yes, I, I believe that will be so. This, most of that generation is, is uh, sadly leaving us now. A great breeder himself, your father, like many more, would have taken note and learnt from what Kerr did. Kerr's lifelong interest was in breeding and improvement and he endeavoured to make his mark on whatever he touched. The man was extremely able, wasn't he? It does seem like it, you know, to breed top animals and all these different species and breeds is, is just fantastic. And you mentioned the species and you're right, Duncan, having first bred rabbits at Loretto School, uh, here's a rather diverse list of stock that he was involved in. Clydesdale horses, of which he was very successful, Hackney ponies, Hackney horses, Shetland ponies, Aberdeen Angus cattle, Shorthorn cattle, Hereford cattle, Frisian cattle, Border Leicester sheep, Black Chiviot sheep, flat-coated retriever dogs, Field and Sussex spaniels, Cairn and West Highland terriers, various poultry and ducks, pigeons and canaries, and guinea pigs. It's incredible. It is incredible. I suppose there must have been such things that crossed over, learning how he makes his genetics and stuff like that, because he did a lot of line breeding. Most people will remember um, Harveston for the Aberdeen Angus cattle that he was most synonymous with, and a herd that stayed at the top for nearly 60 years. and started in 1898. It was founded on just a few families, which included Miss Burgess, Erica, the Mabel Prides, and, of course, the Joanna Erica. And many of these could be traced back to the early founders, McCombie, Watson, 
Sir George yes. McPherson Grant at Ballandalek. I mean, the, the, the guy was right there at the beginning of the next generation of these, these early breeders. Yes, he definitely made his mark on it. And I, I know my, my father followed what he did a lot, and he would be at Harvester a lot. Kev bought a number of bulls from Ballandalek, including Eurephus in 1916 for 2,800 guineas. In 1916, a record price. That'd be yeah. a quarter of a million today, probably. Hell of a price. Something like that, yes. At Kinnaird, um described Erica 843 cow. She had splendor and beauty, but admitted she wasn't very big. And I suppose one has to bear in mind that back then, a lot of these Angus were, were enormous cattle back then, weren't they? I mean, they, they were as big as the cattle today, maybe. Perhaps she just wasn't big enough. That could be the fact. It was maybe not the type they were going for. I think the change of type back then that maybe the writing was on the wall from these bigger cattle even going back in, into the to the 1860s that they were starting to bring them down smaller and sweeter again. The first Erica had eight calves before she died at the age of 16 and of those four daughters were split into branches of the family as we know them and uh, then they got rather entwined with males from that same line in, in a very uh, um, clever pattern and after that, it gets all a bit complicated. But evidently, at least one of the Ericas from Ballandanic found its way to Seafield, which in turn, Juana Erica 36,285 in the herd book, found her way to Kerr for 135 guineas in 1905. Here ends the history lesson. And boy, did she ever do a good job at Harveston. Yes, the list is, is endless, really. They, they had many championships, and the majority of them had come from that family. Indeed. Joan Erica's first daughter, Juanita Erica, went on to win the Highland Show in 1907 as a heifer. Uh, and then she produced seven daughters, all of whom between them set up probably the most prestigious family, the Joan Erica family. And bearing in mind there was no embryo transfer back then, this would have taken a good while, wouldn't it? Yes, it was, it was a slow process. The, and probably back then a lot of the cows wouldn't calf to the three-year-old as well. True. Among Juanita's offspring, we had Juanessa Erica, and she was a most accomplished cow, again winning the Highland, this time in 1912. And she was also the granddam of the 1929 winner and the very prolific uh, Gypsy Eric. And after that, we get a granddaughter, uh, Julia Erica, who again won the Highland show, not just once, but three years in a row, in 1934 to 1936. And, and she was the son of Gypsy Eric, and she was double-bred to Juanita Erica, and this, this, this stuff was tight. But uh, what a fantastic feat. And not only that she won the Highland Show three times in a row, but she was also the third generation of one female to, uh, to win that event. Unbelievable. Yeah. And she was described by many judges, quote, as the loveliest cow ever to grace the breed. What a great statement. Lovely, isn't it? Yeah. And talking of great breeders, and uh, this time in the Hereford cattle breed, we go on to discuss uh, another equally immense character, the Captain De Quincey, who was in the, in the, lived in Herefordshire and ran the Vernon Hereford herd, and, and amongst other things as well. And I'm joined on this episode by uh, another historian and a good friend, Clive Davis from Westwood there. And Clive has a, a lot of information and personal experience about Captain De Quincey. To give his full title, Captain Richard Sayher de Quincy Quincy was an exceptional man in so many ways. 
born in 1896. He died in 1965, and his contributions to the Hereford cattle breed are unrivaled, and the name of Verne revered throughout the cattle world on all the continents to this day. Not unlike Ernest Kerr, who we discussed recently on this podcast, De Quincey wasn't just a cattle breeder. He bred hackney ponies, celium terriers, hummingbirds, orchids, and a variety of other things. In fact, it was said that he adored anything of beauty, and it was his passion to improve it wherever possible. What a great mission, not only to enjoy beauty, but to have the ability to enhance it. And and in a word, um, Clive, De Quincey was just a genius. He certainly was successful at so many things that he attempted. And of course, he left great legacy as well. And it was said where we see an animal with faults, he'd just see it as a challenge when you'd see that he, that could be put right just by breeding. And that's a, you know, a, great, a great philosophy to look at livestock, isn't it? I do remember that he said of livestock that they should be judged by their positive points and not their negative points mm. to take the benefits of a certain animal to mate with another one that perhaps needed that sort of improvement and I think that was a very positive attitude as well and whereas perhaps bemoaning and groaning of what we see in front of us maybe to this day he probably had quite a different attitude to That's, life. Like all top breeders, Dick, he was known as Dick to his friends, he possessed an incredible memory for pedigrees, and it's said that on a tour round the herd at Vern, he would discuss pedigrees for generations, not just direct ones, but lateral ones as well, and uh, each visit apparently became a, a practical lesson in genetics in itself. I think we also need to recognise that not only was he a great breeder of stock, because clearly he was, but he was a great marketeer. And the fact that he managed to breed animals that did what it said on the tin, Mm -hmm. they did breed for other people, so they'd come back for more. He built on that and built on that to Mm -hmm. the point that that was the place to go. And maybe to the end of the time, was just running out of steam a bit but and he said he was a he was a very humble man though the captain he'd give quiet advice to those that required it and be extremely patient for those that didn't understand it and in one article i read he said putting the thoughts of a breeder onto paper was virtually impossible he said it was like trying to describe a dream stating it refuses to be pinned down for examination and it, that shows he, he would have had a complicated mind but he didn't maybe have the ability to write down the exact formula for for what he was doing. The captain was able to make arrangements and go and work as a pupil for Percy Bradstock at Freetown, who themselves had pretty much a century of breeding behind them by by that time. And De Quincey always attributed that to his his later success, the, the years there. I think he was there two years, and he admits he never did any work on the farm, but uh, he studied okay. and, and studied and learned amongst the breed. And there's quite a nice little story attached to this because. Good enough wasn't actually a free town bull because that didn't even exist at that point in time. It was he was bred by William Griffiths of Alders End, and uh, the Griffiths are great breeders of Hereford cattle. Actually, they actually they th- this bull had been called Gudenuf, who was named after a Russian general. But somebody <laughs> at the Hereford office thought be- thought their spelling had gone a bit wrong <laughs> and entered the bull as good enough into the herd book, and so that's what he became. <laughs> he was shown by Percy Bradstock, who had been brought up by his uncle, Mr. Taylor, at Shoal Court. And Percy managed to take the tenancy of the neighbouring farm at Garford, 
and that's from where good enough traveled to Cardiff to, to win the Royal. Okay. But at Cardiff, um, there were overseas visitors and an Argentinian man was very interested in the bull. And through his great mentor, William Griffiths, Percy Bradstock held out for a good price and sold him at six thousand five hundred pounds. Wow. In nineteen nineteen he 19. bought him two years earlier for fifty pounds <laughs> and the deal included a gold sovereign for young Tom Bradstock's money box. Well well. As a young man, he bred Celium Terriers, and uh, his grandfather had bred them as well. It's a breed that comes from South Wales somewhere, and, and uh, he won two classes at Crufts in 1922. So this is before, certainly before he started getting into cattle. And uh, similar to Ernest Kerr, we were talking about uh, earlier that uh, he tried a few things before he, he got into his cattle. and He later admitted that it was breeding and understanding of breeding dogs that gave him his first standards of cattle breeding. He was good at going out into the marketplace and he bought many a beast. Um, not so many of them perhaps succeeded as much as the ones he'd already got, you know, and the ones that he bred up from them. And I think maybe that might have been one of the issues with the Vern cattle is that he more or less relied on two male lines. The one he bred through Tarrington Punch, sire of Vern Roberts, yes. and the other was a, a bully book called Commando, who went back to the, the same original bloodline, but a slightly different angle, a slightly different type of animal, and he, the great same bull that he produced from that line was a bull called Zeus. So these two lines, Robert and Zeus, were really the makeup of the Vern cattle, and if you look at their pedigrees, you've invariably got one on the top line through the sire, and one on the top line through the mother and one way or the other a lot of Vern cattle come around by incorporating both these bloodlines mm -hmm. and of two quite contrasting types of animal. Mm -hmm. um, had he had a third and a fourth, you know, maybe that would have been even more interesting. David Attenborough came down and stayed the weekend just to have a look at them. <laughs> yeah. Just incredible. yeah, and bred orchids, I understand. And I mean, you can begin to see, can't you, why perhaps you needed to book up in advance to have a visit there, whether you wanted to see Hereford <laughs> cattle or beef shorthorn cattle or acne horses or orchids or, I mean, birds <laughs> or whatever it was. And there was a a secretary employed who, who probably earned his spears one day because um, the, the captain had had a Hereford cattle visitor um, um, from, from the from Wyoming Hereford Ranch, the, the, the Luzia family uh, came over and spotted a young car there called Vern Diamond and asked if they could buy it. And oh no, the captain said, no, well, certainly not for uh, at least another 12 months because he'll need to be used. Mm. Anyway, in a year's time, the phone rang and the it was the Americans on the phone and whether or not this bull was available. Well, unfortunately, the captain wasn't well and he'd taken to his bed. So the secretary went upstairs and said, um, excuse me, captain, there's an American gentleman on the phone. He wants to know if Burn Diamond's available for sale. And amongst all the coughing and the spluttering, Captain De Quincey told him, say, ask him 6,000. Well, the secretary got downstairs and he hadn't listened to what the captain had said. And he asked for 16,000, <laughs> to which the answer was, get him shipped over. <laughs> and uh, that was Vern Diamond leaving these shores, who'd already done his work at the Vern. Uh, Captain De Quincey died in 1965 when the Hereford herd was dispersed in what you could only call a spectacular fashion. And I've got a report from the sale here where the world record average was achieved 
136 lots, averaged nearly 1,700 guineas apiece, and the sale grossed over 230,000. I mean, again, that'd be enough to buy a few farms with that little lot. When I first took it on myself to start studying the history of some of the the breeds of cattle and sheep in the UK, uh, I kind of underestimated what sort of work and what sort of research would be involved. And it was great to seek out some older characters who could help me out with with some of that information. And uh, I think we ended up um, profiling 28 different breeds of livestock, but I started that off with uh, looking at the continental animals which had come in over the last 40, 50 years, some of those coming up for anniversaries just now, and uh, uh, I can't highlight from all of these, but I particularly enjoyed the one on the Charolais cattle there, and, and the wonderful knowledge and wisdom of uh, Sandy Beaton and uh, Hector Campbell in episode 16. Before we look at these early imports, let me just talk through the origins of the breed in France. The home of the Charolais is in southeastern France, the small district of Charolles, in what we would know as Burgundy, also home to some excellent white wines. And um, they're believed to date back to the 8th century. <laughs> the cattle, not the wines. Or maybe both of them, I don't um, It was the 16th century before anybody really noticed these cattle when one chap called Claude Matthew took some of them a few hundred miles west to the Nerve region and not a million miles from where the limousine cattle come from. And a few like-minded improvers set about them over there and called them the Nivermes, and a herd book was set up in 1864. And then the guys down near Chirol, they got their act together and started their herd book in uh, 1880. And it took till 1919 before the two herd books could merge, which is uh, quite a familiar story, fellas. I've seen this a lot of times. Hector, the the origins of these these strong cattle were for pulling ploughs, weren't they? So they would have some pretty hefty shoulders on them, these first cattle. And for them, it was all about size and weight and strength, wasn't it? Yeah, they were a beast of burden, really, over in France. We had the Clydesdale horses, and I think they had the, the Charlie cattle to till their grounds. That's how I am led to believe, anyway. Sandy, these... First imports actually came in in the late 50s uh, when the Angus and the Shorthorn trade was flying, wasn't it? And they'd, they'd have gotten short thrift, wouldn't they, from the traditional cattle boys? They were trying to import them when uh, there was so much against them that uh, they finally agreed to let the Ministry of Agriculture buy a string of bulls and they would be put to the MMB for tests and trials. Tom Alsop was the chief livestock officer for the Ministry of Agriculture, and he selected the original bulls. They were dairy men, apart from my boss, Colonel Ogden, who was a founder member. Uh, They were all dairy men. Tony Harmon and all these people were dairy men, and the whole idea was to increase the beef output from the dairy home. Uh, import licenses were applied for putting pressure on the government, I think, which appointed a subgroup called the, they were the Notorious Terrington Committee, and they eventually approved the import of bulls in 1962 so the <laughs> Milk Marketing Board could use them, but uh, they ruled out the import of females, didn't they? They weren't allowed in at all. Well, no, but they had to be tested with these bulls that were bought by the ministry first. That was the whole exercise. There would have been no importation of anything if Tony Harmon hadn't have had a word with his friend Maitland Mackey, who was an MP and a Member of Parliament, and they got his permission through Parliament. I've um, got a, um, 
a section of the meeting was actually John Mackey, uh, Maitland Mackey's brother. Um, That's right, sorry, yeah. And um, father of the current Maitland Mackey. Uh, they raised a motion in the House of Commons and the Ministry of Ag in 1963. And of course, as you said, he'd be a dairy farmer, but he talks about the Angus and the Shorthorn and the Herefords putting up an unfair fight to keep the Charolais out. And some of these breeds would have a lot of power in government, wouldn't they? They'd be titled peers amongst some of these Angus and, oh, yes. and, and, yeah. and breeders. And Mackie mentions corruption in the above committee and, and accuses the men who were against the breed, saying that they'd actually been using Charolais semen themselves, including the president of the Shorthorn Society, he says. So the whole thing was a bit of a farce, really. And uh, he also goes on to say they'd got Charolais cattle in Canada six years earlier and he'd threatened to go there and get genetics. I mean, he was stamping his foot, but they, 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 were still, they still weren't yielding. And again, on this, the minutes of this meeting, the opposition was somebody called Sir David Gibson Watt. And it's a name I recognise as a breeder of Welsh black cattle. He spouts about these animals bringing in disease and uh, they were pretty scared, weren't they? Uh, they? They knew what was coming, didn't they? Oh, there, there was all sorts of uh, tales. There was leptospirosis, you know, that was a scare about that. And uh, they found that in <laughs> but you can really find that anywhere. And if we talk about some of those early pioneers in the breed, I've got a list of a few here. Bill Bruce at Balmile would be in there early, as would Major Walter of Balthaic, and, and a bit before your time, Hector, I guess. Kerse now would be before us, and the Merns, which was Alec Anderson. The first importation of females we had were E's, got four E's, in, and it'd be 1970, I think. Well, I remember, well, my father, I was only 16, we went to Ellis show that the Saturday after we bought Hen and Lodge Emperor at the Royal Show and we got dogs abuse because at that time, Ailith, it was a small local show, but there'd be 40 or 50 Angus and 30 Shorthorns and we got dogs abuse and one well-known Berkshire farmer, who shall remain nameless, told us we'd been better off buying a Frisian. He would do the same job. <laughs> and he later judged Smithfield. So. And uh, on the way home, we called at uh, Ernie Dodds, and I think I saw the best field of bull calves I've ever seen. And they were all by a pollen out of imported French cows that he lost in a TB. He had to start it all over again, you know. He was a master breeder, Ernie Dodd, and, and uh, also a very good judge, a very fair judge when he was judging a show. He didn't have favourites, he had good cattle at the top. So we mentioned Tutton Hall, Hublot, and of course there was Impeccable, we'll come on to in a minute, and they were both out of the same cow, Eclipse, and uh, she was some cow. Didn't, didn't she share the Burke Trophy? Didn't uh, Hublot and his mother win the Burke Trophy between them? Yes, they did. And uh, I, they also won champion and reserve at the Highland. Yeah. And I was on that grand parade that day, and the cow left everything in the Charlie breed in her shadows. She mm -hmm. just marched on and left everything. And her bull, Hublot, was a good on locomotion, but he couldn't keep up with his mother, and he was only two-year-old. We were in the Burke Trophy 87 with the man from Devon, his cow, and uh, I think that was by Cotley's hat. And um, then the following year, we were we had both cattle in the same trophy. Excellent. And we won, we won both, both years. Two years back to back, that's, that's, that's some, some record. And Impeccable was the sire of Lappingford Tulip, and uh, they went to Esmore Evans, and I think uh, she was out of Cote Iris. 
Iris was born in 73, and she, Coat Iris would have been flushed by Esmore at the end of the 70s, and I think there were 32 registered uh, calves off of Coat Iris, including Tulip, and of course um, Mary Victorious, uh, her full brother who went to another top breeder, Neil Massey. Yes. Yeah, he bred very well. He did the breed a lot of good. In that. And, hey, moving on, or moving back, should I say, to the Royal, the Charolais won the Burke 17 times in all, Sandy. And, uh, yeah. You you had a hand in a, in, a, in a couple of those. How many did you get involved in, just the two? Two. Mm-hmm. Two. They, they certainly were hard to stop for, for a number oh, of years. Oh, they, they were the breed. It's sad to see how they've lost a bit of ground, but I don't know why that is. Another continental breed that I found particularly fascinating, and again, something that I'm professionally involved in, uh, was the hearing the beginnings of the Texel sheep breed, and uh, obviously one of the biggest breeds now in the UK. And it was great to chat to Robert Laird from Camwell, who has huge depth of knowledge within the, in the Texel breed industry, and uh, these highlights from episode number 21. So I believe the story starts in 1971 when a wholesale butcher called Bill Jackson spoke to Jock McGregor and Ian Johnston in Lanark Mart about wanting better confirmation on slaughter lambs. And as with a lot of these imports, it was a light-on moment, wasn't it, Robert? It sparked a phenomenon that we have today. Well, Bill had an insight to what the, the market in Europe was, and he had seen these better-shaped lambs in Paris at the meat market, and uh, he just felt the stuff that he was getting through his slaughterhouse wasn't good enough for the export trade. So he felt that the, the breeds here could be doing with a bit of continental influence to make them better for export. You know, the penny was beginning to drop that... Um, you know, that there was a continental ship, you know, that was going to do a job. Of course, and, and so Sandy Grant joined them and they set up the bones of the Texel Sheep Society at Jock's Place, I think, where it stayed for, for a good number of years. And the first imports, I think, were selected by Bill Jackson in Holland, but then they were refused entry by the ministry, I think, in, into the UK. Was was there maybe a hint of a made of visitor issue there? Yeah, well, I think at that time uh, it was new to both countries, I think, made of visitor, but there was definitely uh, a problem in Holland with them at that time. Sandy, along with Blair Hill, I think, headed to the Paris show to try another route this time through France. And the trip was a bit interesting, Robert. Yeah, well, the, the French air traffic controllers who were in strike, who it's not an unusual scenario, as you probably know, Andy, <laughs> living in France. I but uh, they were flying, uh, they were trying to fly to Glasgow to uh, Paris and of course the, the the closest they could get was Belgium and they were sitting at the airport looking around and uh, they saw that we weren't really 100% sure it was to start with but a big wicker basket with a lot of kind of footballs and kit in it and they discovered it was a Scottish football team were supposed to be playing in France in Paris <laughs> okay. so uh, they, of course they were the bold boys decided they'd get a chance with them and discovered they were also flying to Belgium so they managed to tag along in the bus from Belgium to Paris with the Scottish football team and that was the Paris show that they went to that they actually put the feelers out and really made contact with the top breeders in France. It's fantastic. Because <laughs> according to the first flock book, there would be Texels born in 72 on uh, those eight farms that were involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Will Jackson had a demonstration in his slaughterhouse at some point in either 72 or 73 where all the locals could go and see the offspring of these uh, uh-huh. Irish Dutch bred sheep that came into here. So um, 
That would be a great eye-opener probably for the locals. Let's talk about this first import. They brought in 13 rams and 26 gimmer lambs in January 1974. And I believe the society allowed two gimmer lambs and one tup per breeder. Is that right? More or less. I think that's more like, I think one of them got one, is one got three. I'm not sure why that was the case, but uh, yeah. And they weren't um, a huge investment for these guys. We're probably looking at two or three hundred quid a piece. Is that right? Indeed, I would have an exact figure on what they were, but I think it would be along those lines anyway. There, there was still a, a vacancy there for some of the sheep that had already been selected. So uh, Jimmy Minto, who uh, was probably only about four miles from here, knew that my father used to show carcasses at the local abattoir at the Christmas show, so he knew he might be quite interested in uh, something that was going to have a better carcass, and uh, my father jumped at the chance of uh, getting involved in this this importation, and it, it was really a bit of luck. Uh, and anyway, a second import was planned for September of that year, I think, and this time they brought in yep. quite, a, quite a boatload, didn't they? And that founded some yep. of the great flocks that are still familiar names in the breed today. List of who's who, if you like. We've got Keith Jameson at Annan, Jimmy Warnock at Watch Now, Jim Clark, Garn Goward, Morgan Milnturin, uh, Great Langside, McKero, Grogfoot, uh, Jimmy Monroe, who I think was Fiona Sloan's father, is that right? That's right, yeah. The first show to have classes, I believe, was Les Mago show in 1978, and you guys are already jockeying for position, weren't, weren't you? Uh, did you win it, Robert? No, no, my, my father was the judge, actually, oh, okay. so that was the... I, I don't even remember being there, to be honest with you, just before my time a wee bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> Obviously, the society grew, and it was soon up over a 1,000 members within a decade, I think. And, uh, and Absolutely. They, uh, and then they moved office down to Stonely on the Royal Showground, and good early rams at Annan, and Keith was an exceptional breeder, wasn't he? And uh, he was known as Mr. Texel for a while, I would say. Yeah. Oh, well, it was fantastic, the hospitality received from his um, Keith and his wife Margaret, uh, but Keith was a, a pioneer of the breeding that he would always, he wasn't frightened to use his, his own tops, he knew the female lines and he knew what to cross and what not to cross and uh, no, um, nobody will ever follow Keith, he's a, he a unique man. Like. A previous podcast we mentioned how the 2001 foot and mouth devastated the limousine breed and the same happened with the Texels, didn't it? The long-standing flocks like Annan and Court Hill where bloodlines going way back to the beginning got taken out. And But it did put a bit of a bottom in the female trade, didn't it? So for a year well, or so it... after that uh, um, they, were, they were looking for, for, for females. Keith came and bought some of his own breeding back from me which was nice to see. Absolutely. And... I will stir them in a little bit and say that the money was chasing the heads and, and uh, that would be fair, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, you had the best carcass in the world, but if you've got a decent head on it, yeah, you added another two, two notes on the end. Uh, absolutely. Uh, no, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the, the extremes, if you go too extreme of any, for any trait, you'll, you'll come unstuck. So you have to come in the centre ground and uh, longevity is a key factor that we, we have to get back to and I think a lot of breeders have realised that okay it's nice to have the heads but it's great to have a bit of growth, a bit of carcass and and maybe we need, there's a lot of folk realising we need to get back to females that are feminine. We can't talk Texels really without highlighting sportsmen's. Um, uh, Jeff Bowden started with some good use and I think you know where some of those are but at Melavale in, in Cheshire and his bloodlines have been sought after and then Charlie's a fantastic judge of stock too, and I'm not sure how many times those guys have broken the breed record, but last year 350,000 of a double diamond was unbelievable, wasn't it? And was he was he the best sheep you've seen? 
Yeah, there's no doubt about it. He'll be up there, if not the best ever. I would have said he had the figures and he had the good looks as well, and he he had tremendous power. So we've all got to show a bit of responsibility and flush commercially sound sheep, and uh, the breed will be fine. But just because it's got a nice big head should not be the driving force but deciding which sheep we flush. We then went on to look at a, another series, this time of the native breeds of livestock in the UK, and this is when the research really got to, really got deep, and uh, a lot of work went into this. And again, we profiled something like twenty-one different native breeds, and there's still some that haven't we haven't quite covered yet. But uh, a couple of my favourites here: uh, one because they've had a two hundredth year centenary this year is the the Shorthorn breed, and uh, this time I got to along with two great breeders, Kerry Coombs and John Scott from Fair. Uh, and this is the first of, from the first of two episodes we did on the short odds from episode number 52. Kerry, although the short odds are thought to have origins back to the Roman times, it would be three breeders who are collectively yep. heralded as the founders of the short horn breed as we know it, wouldn't it? Uh, indeed, uh, we'll come to those three breeders. Um, they're comparatively well known, but it mustn't be forgotten um, that they were working with the type of beast that had been developed in the northeast of England, uh, around Darlington and, and down as far as Holderness. Um, they were said at the time to be a cattle of a large frame and a strong bone and good milk yield, and with shorter horns than the long horn. And they were variously known as the Holderness, the Teeswater, the Craven, and the Durhams, okay. and only later became known as Shorthorns. Base stock bred by others, uh, um, and probably including imports from Holland that enabled these breeders to work their, their magic. The first name on the team sheet really are the brothers Charles and Robert Collings from the Darlington area, as you said, of uh, Northumberland, who took over the tenancy of Ketton Estates from their father in uh, 1785 and then subsequently the nearby Barnton farm. And studying Robert Bakewell's theories of inbreeding, they too would start with the purchasing of a number of females and a bull called Hubbock who may have been of questionable parentage, could we say? And uh, Bakewell had a huge influence on the breed, uh, didn't he, chaps? Um, indeed. Uh, Bakewell, I think, was key to the Collings breeding methods, and, and it was known that, that the Colling brothers visited him. Yeah, that's great to hear that, uh, obviously, that Hubbock then would have been a very influential bull right from the very start. And if we look at the females from um, Collins, they had uh, their female lines of Duchess and Strawberry would have been found at Ketten, and they would breed those close to fix a type, and the, the latter went on to breed a bull favourite, 252, who is widely recognised as one of those early improvers, and who was used on just about every cow in the herd, including his own offspring, and uh, for two or three generations, I think, and back then, as is now, um, this would result in a few casualties, I guess. John, um, um, inbreeding still happens, though, doesn't it, And to, to fix traits, even to this day? Yeah, I think it's fascinating when you look back to see what those guys were doing you know, 200 years ago to, to create the breed and, and, and fix the cattle and, and the type of cattle. And you, you just love to be able to go back there and, and speak to them about that thought process that they went through um, to develop this breed. And indeed, it happened in other breeds as well. Richard Collins then would disperse the herd some 10 years later and the Collins' era sort of came to an end. And 
the next guy on the sheet really would be a guy called Thomas Booth, who would be an, a, another breeder around that similar time, experimenting with cattle roughly in the same area at um, Killaby Hall there near Catrick. And although initially, anyway, he wasn't quite so regimented, I don't think. And eventually, he did settle on a short-horn type after buying a few at Charles Collins's dispersal. And from there, he made more inroads in breed development by hiring out his bulls to widen his gene pool. And I think that's quite a good idea, thus getting access to more results. Uh, John, is that something you do, hire out your bulls locally so you can buy bulls back? Well, if you think back to 50, 60 years ago, there would have been quite a few herds in this area. And we could have, um, you know, swapped bulls and hired bulls out. I think nowadays with the, with the high health situation we've got, which herds have, there's less of that going on unless you're happen to be in the same area as someone with a similar health status to you. Of course, we have AI now, which they didn't have back then. Yeah. Well, I used to say baits for the pail and booth for the butcher. But, you know, they were, they were, and they were highly competitive, as breeders are today. But we've all got our different emphasis we put on our cattle. Some, some you know, will be breed bigger cattle. Some will breed milkier cattle. Um, some will breed more muscular cattle and, and uh, you know up to a point within a breed standard you know it, it's it's fine it's great isn't it we can all do our own thing to some extent um, it's very difficult to compare what we're doing now with what they were doing then and you know even going back to, we, we referred a minute ago to the use of the Galloway we don't really know what the, the Galloway cattle they infused the short home with looked like really do we we're sort of we're imagining it a bit, yeah. you know. So everything we refer to back in the 18th century, it's a long time ago. Meanwhile, we have yet another rival, the third of this trio, and this was one Thomas Bates. And farming on a tenanted farm in Kirk Levington on the banks of the River Tyne, uh, land owned by the Duke of Northumberland, Bates was a flamboyant, if not somewhat eccentric character, so we say. So much so that in 1879, somebody wrote a 500-page book about his, his antics, which uh, might well be worth a read from what I've read about him. And He had a classical education and started breeding short-horns in 1800 after seeing the Durham Ox, so studying uh, Charles Collins. And in 1804, he purchased uh, Duchess from Collins and later her granddaughter who was by Comet from Collins so there's a bit of an influence there isn't he and uh, he had other female lines as well but it's uh, and he's more Bates is more noted for that Duchess family isn't he and, and it was certainly well sought after in the export trade as well find out and as the breed gained popularity it was time to start documenting some of these cattle and uh, we've discovered on our recent podcast about the Hereford cattle that it was this was often left up to free enterprise and uh, at a meeting of top breeders including the three mentioned above here it was uh, one George Coates that was given the task of gathering all the information whilst breeder Sir Henry Vane Tempest picked up the bill and although the latter died a year later Coates is said to have continually toured the northern counties dropping off and on farms and fairs on his white horse he must have been some man there Kerry he must have been indeed I've got someone called Scott Watson he related that if on a day in or, in or about 1822 they had been seen coming over the ridge into Wolfdale, an old man on a white horse, it might have been George Coates with his satchel full of calf records and bull pedigrees. <laughs> Apparently he had a mobile desk too. Um, so The task took him uh, six years to complete and then they had another meeting of the greater good and they all gathered to view the results. And uh, more money was pledged then to print the work because he'd got it all gathered, but they got to get it down into a book. So some of that was offered from Robert Collins. And then uh, 
Robert Collins went and died in 1820, and uh, the, the money dried up then, and eventually it was left to Jonas Whittaker to solely finance the work, which was completed in uh, 1822, some 20 years later. So some job of work, as you said, it took him 20 years, and uh, 700 bulls and uh, a similar number of females were recorded. And 500 copies were produced and sold at one guinea each. So therefore, th there we go. He got his money back. Well, somebody did. <laughs> it's fascinating, um, Andy. But I'm listening to this thinking that, that I'm pretty sure that I know Carey's got a horse. I don't know if it's white or not. Um, I know he's got a satchel. I've seen him with a satchel at Sterling. Uh, he's, he's cut his cow numbers back. He's going to have time in his hands. He maybe could pick up this bit of work and, 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 and keep going with it. Good indeed. And then staying with the native breeds of cattle, one that I found absolutely fascinating and a breed that I knew very, very little about was the Ling breed, uh, originally uh, originally created by the Kadzo brothers on the Isle of Ling itself. And uh, I get a great insight into this one by speaking to Neil McGowan, who, uh, whose father was very much involved in the breed, as Neil is himself to this day. This was episode number 65. And Neil, you're a busy man, I know, involved in a lot of breeds and projects, but your family have been involved. They have a history within this breed going back a long way. Yeah, I, Dad was, he was at the first sale back in 1966, just for a look. And he'd, he'd sort of developed an interest in kind of range-type cattle by that stage, travelling the world, delivering bulls, really. And, and uh, my mum's father, James Bigger, that was at Chapleton, mm -hmm. Um, he would be involved quite early on, along with his old crony Frank Young at Kingith. The the Cadro family are still very much involved on the island of Ling. Staying with the breed for all that time is, uh, is is quite a feather in their cap. Indeed, indeed. Let's have a look at that family in a little bit more detail. And the original brothers were Shane, who was the oldest, uh, born in 1913, and then Dennis and Ralph. And they all farmed on mainland Scotland in their own right, mainly in the east, I think, uh, uh, down in East Lothian there. And they were all into fattening cattle at that time. And they'd buy a lot of store cattle out of Ireland, as a lot of people would do back then. And uh, out of frustration of giving most of the profit to, and I quote, Paddy the dealer, <laughs> who sounds a character who supplied their cattle out of Ireland, the boys collectively dreamt about buying a hill farm on the West, West Highlands summer somewhere they could breed their own cattle and then also ship their feed up from the east. Um, a relatively simple plan, Neil, that still goes on today. Breeding the cattle on the hill and then bringing them down to fatten if you can have the whole circle. And, and uh, But these boys got a little bit lucky, I think, when uh, when they bought an entire island that came up for sale off the coast near Oban. And uh, that would be the mid-40s, I think. And uh, a ballsy move to go and go and buy an entire entire island. Yeah, I'm 47, I think they got, they got half of it in 47 and uh, the rest uh, just a few years later but you know they were they were, they were pretty go ahead guys um, and just for our listener the isle of ling is uh, 15 miles southwest of oban uh, just yeah, 300 yeah. meters across the Kewan straits uh, which meant basically everything would have to go on and off the, the island by ferry and back then that wouldn't have been so easy and they'd need to book an entire boat in advance to, to ship the livestock logistics would have been absolute nightmare in the beginning i mean it's an off-putting thing really yeah it was an old steamer it was it wasn't until 1954 that ling got a car ferry and uh, then it was it was actually later 
still in the 70s when the, the cancers got their own barge. Brilliant to have your own barge and what a, um, a vision that conjures up. And the island itself is actually, th- I think, 3,800 um, acres and population of 180 people. And to start with, they bought 2,000 acres of it, I imagine, for very little money. And it was owned by the Marquis of Bredelbane, I think, at this point, who was quite a substantial highland cattle breeder himself. So the this island has up to a hundred inches of rainfall. Yes, for my American listeners, a hundred inches of rainfall and uh, pretty much solid slate, as you mentioned, under the subsoil and uh, barely fertile land. No trees, I don't think. Uh, it doesn't sound too appealing to, to a farmer to me. Thankfully, the one thing on the island came—the uh, island came with a cow buyer that could winter somewhere near two hundred cows and. And it was up to the brothers then to work out what sort of cattle they wanted to fatten and what was required from the mothers that bred them. And basic requirements would be that a cow could uh, rear a calf every year, stand their weather and be able to breed replacement heifers. Back home, these brothers had mainly been fattening short-horn cross highland, cross short-horn um, steers. And uh, they'd got a supplier of these in, in, in throughout Scotland, I think. And in the early 50s, they sourced uh, 50 first cross short-horn highland heifers and then... I suppose the question to ask, or they will be asking, is would the whole be greater than the sum of its parts? And more to the point, what bull would they put back on these heifers? And uh, I believe it was an Angus was discussed and dismissed, and a Hereford likewise. And of course, there wouldn't be any Continentals back then before eventually they uh, they settled on using the short horn as, as the second cross and also putting that short on bull back uh, back across some of those uh, those cows that they'd inherited. I think it's important to stress that these if these guys were you know, they've been buying the steer calves for for long enough off a lot of these places um they knew where to go and find the heifer calves to, mm-hmm. to start them. They, they were getting them from pretty decent herds and and there's a wonderful paper that which was written in 1974 by Dennis Kadzo he quotes um, being an island community we found ourselves responsible for the bus service the meat milk and coal deliveries and a variety of other services none of which of course were profitable and I, I love that idea that when you go and buy the land there that basically you've got to take on the responsibility of looking after the inhabitants as well it's regardless of, of, of the cost of it the farming business on Ling started to settle down a little bit but the one thing that became apparent uh, was for animals to survive on that island they really needed to be born and bred there and you know there hangs the rub really and this would take on a problem of its own you know, breeding replacements is an issue with all suckler herds of course and uh, unless you keep a separate uh, herd of pure females somewhere else you know I think they, 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 they fell upon or, or designed that what Dennis described as a, a shortcut in the beef industry you know a self-replacing cow that produces a suitable finished product mm. and that's you know it's still what the ling is today yeah course that left left the course open for the cadsos to try and and fix a breed type that actually suited that island and and that is a, a second cross short on cross highland cross short on uh, um and that's the ling was born would i be somewhere about right with the, with the quantities of short on <laughs> right yeah uh-huh. there's no blueprint exactly but i mean and and the whole thing was very cleverly uh, orchestrated as you said earlier on and a short on bull Krugleston Alistair was purchased from the great Bertie Marshall and uh, described to be as good an example of a short horn breed that you could get both size and width and uh, he was used across these second crosses and that's sort of when the, when the job got going. He would be used across a lot of these first crosses probably mm-hmm. uh, to produce that uh, 
sort of sequel after Shorthorn. Um, Evidently, this was the right ball to suit this commercial requirement. And from then, the second crosses, a bull was selected to breed, and his name was Ling Mist. And uh, I, I think he's well-named Mist. I'd imagine there'd be a little bit of those, and you'd be out looking for him in the mist on the islands. But uh, he, he was mated to his sisters, and uh, quite a simple step, really, to fix the breeding type uh, by breeding it tight, Neil. Yeah, I, they were pretty tight to start off with there, but I think all along they had, uh, there was a chap, uh, Dr. Bob Church, uh, who's uh, is, is uh, from Calgary, and an Alberta man, uh, would be doing a postgrad in Edinburgh at the time in genetics, okay. and he took an interest in what they were doing, and he, he uh, was quite involved with developing the the system that how how to how to get the breed established and then how to how to keep the breeding working and uh, keep the genetic pool wide enough i guess um just to keep a herd running with uh, with a family system and um, yeah i've been thinking about that if, you know I, I think if you went today with this plan it's uh, it's plenty radical like, <laughs> to, to come up with something uh, something new and a, a, a self-contained breed um, you know, running one herd is, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a move. More recently on the Top Lines and Tales podcast, we started a series called Characters in Livestock. And this encompasses, and this encompasses quite a lot of, of people out there. There's some fantastic characters within the industry, as we all know. And it's been great to catch up with so many of those. And this series is still ongoing at the moment. And it's very difficult to to pick out one or two individuals but I have taken a, a couple of, of my favorites of interesting characters and the, the first one of these was catching up with a fellow that I used to know a long time ago and, and a man with a massive insight into the pig business before getting into the to the sheep business and uh, a, a legendary character Lionel Organ on episode number 77. Veteran sheep breeder Lionel Organ. Lionel I hope you don't mind me referring to you as a veteran. Welcome to the program. Well, I suppose that's where the category I belong to anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Though not retired, no? You're just telling me you're still lambing. I don't know how to do that. That's, uh, I haven't found it. Uh, nobody's taught me how to do it, and so I, I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start in the pig business, Lionel? Well, actually, when, when I was a teenager, we bought a few just for fun, a pedigree. That would have been in a, probably a late 50s, I suppose, yes. Okay. They were large whites, and... Just fell in love with them, and away we went, and uh, things just grew and grew and grew and grew, and, grew, and, uh, and they became you know, a major component of our farming business. Yeah. Well, how many sows did you get get up to, uh, um, Lionel? Well, when, I, when I sold up, it wasn't uh, what we call a, a seller's market. We'd achieved just about all we, we could achieve in the pig industry, but we got out in the early 90s when the bottom fell out of the industry. Mm -hmm. We were running nearly 200 sows then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had a tremendous trade for breeding stock, but yes, we used to export a lot, and we also um, used to have a big demand on the home market. Commercial market was strong. We used to sell about three hundred and fifty boars a year, and probably I can't remember well over a thousand females. Huh? It became yeah, it was good business. It was doing well. It was paying well, and suddenly, bang, a bottom fell out, and that was the end of the industry. And not not uh, no. Nobody came running to our aid, uh, no tears shed by government or anybody. The job just went on, people were going bust everywhere. Mm -hmm. I, I was left owing thousands of, from customers. There was one of these 
kindly breeders who uh, were school enough to thought, well, I'll let you have some more, but you must pay me sometime and this sort of thing. Yeah, you knew when that was happening. I got to learn that they were going bust. They were going down, yeah. Very sad. The industry mm-hmm. was running at, must have been close to 60% self-sufficiency when it collapsed. Really? I don't suppose we're much more than 6% now. I rarely bought a, an outside boar. From, uh, very rarely bought one in after I'd been developing the type of pig that the industry would move towards. Um, in fact, you know, without boasting, we did quite pioneer the type of pig of the future at an earlier early enough date to did, benefit, yeah, mm-hmm. benefit a lot from that and that was winning the carcass competitions uh, these carcass competitions it used to amaze me where you know you had to have, have a long pig without sacrificing uh, any any um, flesh for being long it because you were paid in the carcass competition they give you 15 points on a scale based on a scale and 15 points length for weight and there were Okay. You know, it, it was a scale, and you had to have those 15 points to win these cast competitions, mm-hmm. as well as having a great big eye muscle, shallow forehand, big eye muscle, as deep as you could get it, uh, and a streaky, which was very thick and mainly uh, lean interlaced with, with streaks of fat, sure. and a great big eye muscle, I said, and this jam, jam, damn great big jiggy. Now, well, this is what we were aiming at, and uh, it did result in us keeping our own bloodlines and mm. doing close breeding and it came it does come if you because you you know you're not going to undo these things if you're moving in that direction you'll only select your best boars that are, are possessing that design that you're looking for we had everything everything was recorded and uh with uh, initially with pider and then it became mlc mm. everything was recorded and everything was scanned. This was the um, uh, back fats. Uh, I used to measure the back fats and the muscle. Long before they did it in sheep, Lionel. Oh yes, it was. It was twenty years before, at least twenty odd years. And you cleared the cleared the pigs out. And of course, by that time, you're into what more people will know you for. Of course, was the Charolais sheep, and you went into those fairly early doors. I think when they came into the country, and we've had a podcast on the history of the Charolais before, and Jonathan Barber's involvement and what have you. But I mean, you you would you would be one. Sazam would be one of the, the first flocks on 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 the team sheet, wouldn't you? Yeah, we were quite early. Um, I came in. Um, Registered my first uh, chalets in 1986, yes. I I started my clean flock in 1985, a year earlier, that's right. Cleans were before those, and of course you became one of the hard men to beat in the Charolais ring again. That's again where we've crossed paths. Um, The Royal Share would be your stomping ground. You'd be, you'd be, everybody would quiver when they saw one of your sheep coming out in in there, but also a bit like your pigs, I suppose. Your Charolais sheep were renowned to go on and breed, weren't they? And uh, you you had some good sales into a lot of uh, a lot of top flocks yeah a lot of people surprised that i packed my bags and moved to wales actually but um i think it was the best thing i ever did for for my showers i'd been going a good many years you know before i left mm. but i made major strides of improvement took place after i moved to wales not not crazy wales it was just going to, uh, i was just sort of reaping the benefit of uh, my um breeding uh program and when i had um I could really concentrate on the Charolais. I kept the cleans at clean breeds at the same time, um, but they were taking a more of a back seat when I was really t- making big strides in Charolais. And uh, again, uh, 
you know, I more or less pursued the sort of chalet that I had in mind. And when I moved here, everybody told me, you won't sell those things down here. They're too nash. Nobody wants them. <laughs> you know, you, you'll have to sell them in England. <laughs> I'm not sure that you can. Yeah, well, we, we found the same with pigs. You, you can't uh, breed and select on index alone. It's only a tool mm-hmm. to guide you. Um, if you try going down the road where you just select purely on index and, and stick rigidly to that, you'll not produce what the market really wants at the end of the day because we have very few blind customers out there. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and well, I did have one, and he, he could see more of this feel of his hands uh, than the most people could see with their eyes. But more Welsh, uh, we won into breed champions there a few times. Okay. Um, and when I came here, I had already achieved one interbreed there um, with a, a Charlie UI bred. And she was also interbreed pairs and, and supreme breed champion in that for two years. And the, that would have been in the just upon the time we came here. I think the first cha- time she won there was before I moved, and the second time was after. But uh, maybe wrong with my memory. It isn't as strong as it used to be. But. Um, no, I, God, I've got so many champions at the Royal Welsh over the years. That was my target, was to, to because it's it's more meaningful with sheep to win major shows like that than it was with a pig. You're being very modest, and again, to our listener, the Royal Welsh would probably be the biggest sheep show in the world by quite a bit, I would say, and uh, it is a big accolade to win that. You've got yeah. 70 breeds of sheep or something there, of one sort or another, as well as just as, as, as hundreds of breeds in, 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 in or sheep in your class. <laughs> I won the Supreme Pairs, or submitted one of the pair, but on several occasions, mm-hmm. both the pairs. On several occasions, I won that. And on the group of three, could seem to achieve all those. And Breed Champions, uh, I won the um, Charlotte Breed Championship on several occasions. And, and, the, and the clean, even some of the, sometimes in the same year, both breeds. Another character I particularly enjoyed on the podcast was an old friend of mine and uh, well-respected uh, cattleman and, and stockman, uh, Danny Wiley. And uh, Danny and I go back a long way, and it was very interesting to hear the beginning of this interview when he's talking about the the beginnings of the Rouge breed, which is a breed we haven't particularly profiled. But uh, it was fascinating to hear about that before we go on to hear about Danny's prowess within the, the Belgian blue breed and his, his judging exploits. And uh, I really enjoyed this episode. And Danny, but when I knew you, you were shepherd at uh, Robert Graham's, of course, at the S3 Curse. Yeah, 1985, yeah. John Harvey was the stock cattleman at the time, yes. And uh, I took the job on uh, to manage the pedigree Suffolk flock. And uh, it was only that year that uh, Robert left to go down to the Royal Show and come back. I was busy, like, come back. And they actually, he said, oh, says, I've got an apology to make to you. He says, I've seen a new breed of sheep. He said, I think they've got a future. I said, what are they? He says, the West. Where did they come from? Oh, he says, France. And I said, oh, I said, well, I said, we've got enough breeds out of France already. I said, there surely can't be another one. And he says, I have a future for these. Like, we put the top, we put, it was a good Rouge ram, like, and we put them to, oh, had about a dozen different breeds of sheep from lowland breeds to hill breeds. And that following summer, we booked a stand on the NSA. All right. Uh, that was the start. I had all these crossbred lambs by the roof side, like, mm-hmm. and on and the d- Sunday. 
when I, when I walked into the Highland Show, get them off the wagon, I couldn't get the sheep properly finished, bedded and done up because there was that many people coming at me. Coming around you. And a lot of them was like anything else that was imported. There was a lot of bad skin ones right. imported originally, like yeah, mm-hmm. heavy skin, far too heavy skin. Yeah, I, can, I can remember the first rouge sale at Carlisle Market and we had 37 ewe lambs in the pet, well, two pens. And the late George McElroy from Belig was next door to us. Mm-hmm. Across the passageway, obviously, again, about an hour in front, he was going through the ring. And him and Robert were standing, and there was serious interest in these lambs, kind of more or less going horse, mm-hmm. and Robert talking to people like. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robert Graham says to George, well, he says, whoever tops the average between us can buy the tea in the road home tonight in the Metal Bridge. <laughs> And George and John was the only lad at the time, and they, they come out of the ring oh, nearly aye, an hour to an hour and five minutes before his light, and they average 1,487, I think, or 88 Jeez. guineas. Yeah. <laughs> and then we went through an hour and a quarter, an hour and ten minutes, an hour and a quarter later, and we averaged 1,499 guineas wow. exactly for 37-year-old. And I'd be guessing that Davy Cormack came in round about that time when you were there for the limousine. Yeah, the eighty end of eighty six, beginning eighty seven. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. again, yeah. we would be making of course serious money with the uh, the limousines at the same time. And, and oh uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're selling them to America in these days. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. When I left, uh, Billy Bothwick took over as shepherd. Okay. Aye, uh, and uh, Steve Jones came in as a manager. Like, yeah. And uh, that's when I took the job uh, with Barry Baggett, Barry Coley, Pedigree Charlotte, yeah. That's yeah, right, yeah, he had Pedigree yeah. Charlotte. He had some Charlies there, I think, when when you got there, did he? He would have had a... a that's right, yes, I would have had a hell of a good cow, uh, Blealak Cardella. Mm-hmm. Uh, 12,000 guineas he'd paid for it, uh, one of the original Christmas crackers there. And uh, yeah, she went on to be a show cow for you, didn't she? Oh, yeah. Yeah, won a lot of championships, yeah. Uh, Later on, you've started a, a flock of Texel sheep there as well, so you've gone into a different right. breed yeah, now. I think that was your yeah. doing, wasn't it? It was, yes. We wanted to start pedigrees, yeah. And, well, we started buying at Lanark. Uh, the original two purchases was from John Forsyth. That's right. Glenside. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a, as a ewe lamb at the, the back-end sale, like, and... Uh, brought her out and she actually won the, the sheep interbreed at Three County Show. That was the first out. I was only 18 months there, and that's when we got the tenancy. We acquired the tenancy at Pestle Farm, right? Yeah. And then on, on Pestle, I'm right in thinking you went into Shirley Cattle then, didn't you, to start with anyway? Yes, I started the. I was freelancing in a small acreage and I built up a herd of 12 females just within about 18 months. Right. And then I was doing a sale. At, the old Fradley, well, the new Fradley market. The late Jack Young was the auctioneer, and uh, I'd been using the blue commercially a little bit and a few commercial cows, and I always fancied the blue, kind of even when I was at Robert Graham's, like mm-hmm. two of the best cows in the breed at the time. And uh, that's when I fell in love with the blues. And-, and and then we go on to the blues, which more people will know you for, of course, and as you said, under the Tamhorn prefix that, uh, yeah, that you started yeah, the blues. Yeah. And how did you start with them, Danny? 
first one we actually bought was at Chelford Market uh-huh. from the late Dennis Lomas. Building the herd up, you went out to Belgium and bought a few more, but you'd yes. been looking, looking in a different place to maybe where everybody else had been looking. Uh, oh, early. yes, yeah, yeah, completely, Andrew. Yeah, I, I was amazed when we went out to Belgium. We went to, first first trip was a, an organised trip through the society, like, well, it was about 30-odd in the bus. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed, Ken, in these days it was these, Really, as I say, rejects that was coming in in the early 80s, and people can you see? I've seen odd ones going up to Perth in these days, and the the old the proper stockmen would just laugh at them because they were so so bad mobility, like mm. these droopy backsides, like. And I was amazed. So was father, late father-in-law Jeff and Jane, like the real what we call class mobile cattle. Mm-hmm. And these were the kind in Belgium that the breeders didn't reckon much to, okay. because they weren't extreme enough muscle mm-hmm. like yeah. Mm-hmm. And you brought uh, so we imported yeah we we seen these the first two was off the one herd the Wolf and Reef herd Tennis Brothers up Flanders North Flanders in Belgium mm-hmm. uh, Wolf and Reef Noella and Wolf and Reef Alala yeah they were both six months old calves half a calves out of two tremendous cows. And that was the start of the Tamron herds. We brought them home and started the flushing program. One of the best ones I ever brought in was a captive diffuse, she was called. And that was just pre foot and mouth. Mm-hmm. And following foot and mouth, we took her out. And she won Stafford County. Then she went up, won the Highlands, down to the Royal, won the Royal. And she was the first female in the breed going to go for the treble and the big shows. Uh-huh. And she got kicked with a Holstein cow in the Sunday morning in the wash mm-hmm. at Wells and was dead 48 hours later with a hemorrhage. And you eventually went on and dispersed the blues, I think, back in, would that be 2012? Yeah, 2012, yes. Yeah, because uh, I was in partnership with the Charlies, with Pete Malibu at the time. We were just getting too many cattle about, and we thought probably the blues were the ones that would be worth most money. Uh-huh. And, and a man who knows cattle and sheep, of course, you're in demand as a judge these days. And I don't know how many judging panels you sit, your, your name appears on, Danny. But must yeah, be well, I'm actually, I'm actually on seven, yeah, different oh, yeah. panels, yeah, yeah. I'm doing the Black Trophy again. That's the second time I've been invited to do the Black Trophy, and I've never known anybody. And although our characters in the Livestock series is still ongoing, there's plenty more out there, to, people to speak to, and uh, <laughs> beware, I might be picking up the phone to you one day there, listener. Um, it's a series I've really enjoyed, and I'm going to finish off with this one as, as a legendary man in the sheep world and such a character I think everybody would agree, and that is uh, Jimmy Warnock. And uh, Jimmy's going to talk to us a little bit about the, the beginnings of the Texel sheep breed that uh, when they came into the UK and his involvement with that, with that breed. So uh, they decided then they would set up the Texel Sheep Society. Mm. So when I went over to his abattoir with my Polax for you, and I dumped it off, he came and he grabbed me and he says, Jimmy, you're the man. Put your name down on there and give me £20 and I'll sign you up for joining up with the Textile Sheep Society. Right. So I did that and um, the, uh, that was in uh, 1972. Yeah. And in 1973, uh, my name was down for the first importation mm-hmm. and um, we got three years into Dundee. And they came in and they were actually quarantined for two weeks and tested before they were released onto farm. Um, we set up a classification scheme, as we called it, 
<laughs> in the society, and I was involved in that in the early years. The various parts of the texel were divided into points. So there was points for the head, the shoulders, the back, the quarter and jigget, the feet and legs, and the wool. And I always remember it was very interesting when people uh, looked at the scoring system that 25 of the 100 points were awarded to the quarter and jigger. Yeah, that was the most important mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Originally, half the sheep would be would be read from grading up, uh, Jimmy, or a quarter of them. What sort of percentage would would, would have come into the? Oh, I, I think we'd be, we'd be heading for half of them, to be honest. Um, because um, a lot of people jumped in the bandwagon to get a text or talk to put over whatever use they had on their own farms mm-hmm. and grade it up from there. It was a long process, and as you know, 50% of the lambs born are males, so they're not going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, half of the ones that you keep are either not going to breed or they're not going to be suitable by the time they produce lambs. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time to get the, the, the numbers up. I remember going to Banbury Sale. And uh, it was a pure sale with some grading up sheep as well. And the pure sheep, they were through the roof in price. They were all sort of a thousand to to five thousand pounds. And and that's way back in the the late seventies. Yeah. And I remember looking from the ring up at the the ringside, there was people hanging on to rafters in order to see and bid for sheep that they wanted to buy. Mm -hmm. And it it was quite an experience. And, And when I came back, home and told my dad what I got for the the, the, the rams and uh, and the uh, gimmers had sold, he, he thought, these people must be mad. <laughs> <laughs> just just hang on to one more thing that was brought back, and Jimmy, you being on council will have been privy to this or maybe in charge of this, was the fact they brought in a rule that said no dressing to be allowed. And I think, fantastic rule that I think very few breeds uh, um, still live with to this day, and the fact there's no dressing allowed on Texel sheep means you've got to breed them and, yeah. and breed them right. And who was involved in making that that rule, Jimmy? Do you remember? Well, I was on the, the council when that rule was made, and it was quite interesting. There was two objections from notable, outstanding breeders and other. You can name and shame, Jimmy. Who, name and shame. <laughs> can I? Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> um, one, one was uh, uh, the Youngs of Skerrington Mains, another one was Bill Weir of Wheatrig. Okay. And they were both Border Leicester people. Mm-hmm. And you can understand why they were against these rules. But the rules say they were made by a new breed society that had no history to follow. Mm-hmm. So they could make the rules and uh, make sure that they were adhered to. So the rules were no feeding, no colouring, and no dressing. And it's very hard to produce sheep um, without one, two, or even three of these. Mm. And I always remember one of the society sales, the early society sales, there was a big dispute over sheep that were darker skinned, they were browny in the, 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 the fleece, whereas others were white. And this was down to the type of ground that they were farmed of on. Course. Nothing to do with the man colouring them. So it, it led for a lot of interesting discussions regarding whether the sheep had been tampered with or not. Um, <laughs> but I think that the, the rules were good, and uh, I'm delighted to say today that there's still no dressing. I know there's feeding, and I know that there's colouring, but I'm delighted that there's no dressing in the Texels. And uh, they took off after that. But um, no, uh, Bokhouse Ian was a, was a great top, principally because of his skin and stretch. He was a long top, and... When you stood behind them, the quarters and jiggets were the widest part of that sheep. You couldn't see the rib, you couldn't see the shoulder, right. because he ran from the back being the widest to the shoulder being the narrowest. And that was what, the, what sold him, because easy lambed, 
but bred the right shape for the, the meat trade. Of course. Um, no, I, I, Texas have been a big part of my life. Uh, I've travelled all over the UK uh, judging. I've been to um, Europe judging uh, and, and uh, Scandinavia as well. I've met a lot of very interesting people, seen a lot of great sheep, and uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed the time I've been involved. And uh, I would recommend anyone, no matter your age, if you are keen on something, get in and buy some and breed them and follow them all the way through. <laughs> travel the, the, the travel the world and you you meet great people and you're always learning. You, you always learn from people that have been in it for longer than you. As I mentioned, there are any number of um, more characters in livestock out there and a lot of other subjects that we're going to be looking at on the Top Lines and Tales podcast going forward. But I hope you've enjoyed our trip down memory lane there, looking at some of those highlights of some of those great episodes. And uh, I'm sorry if uh, there's some that we missed out there. You can go back, uh, obviously, onto the um, Top Lines and Tales uh, platform and listen to all 100 episodes again, if you so wish, uh, if you have the time to do that. Um, I do have to especially thank our sponsors, Harbour, who sort of joined us about a quarter of a way into this uh, this journey and have been brilliant in the way that they've sponsored us week on week and kept the top lines and tails going and uh, and, and they've enjoyed it themselves. So I particularly like to thank uh, David McKenzie and Jill Hunter for their encouragement to keep this series going as well as from their financial input and I hope that uh, we've been mutually beneficial to each other on this journey so uh, thanks very much to Harbro and thanks very much to all you listeners and uh, here's just listening to some more episodes going forward uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and uh, also for all you supporters of our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page you will know all those photographs that have been out there and uh, I really thank everybody for their contributions in that it's, uh, it's been a great journey and a great hundred episodes so thank you all